the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're welcoming back Drew Beeson. Drew was on the show a little over a year ago talking to us about Ted Braden. Well, he's been hard at work since then. His new book, Paratrooper of Fortune, the story of Ted B. Braden, Vietnam commando, CIA operative, Congo mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper, is out now on Kindle. The paperback will be out shortly, and hopefully I was able to bully Drew into doing an audiobook as well, so we can look forward to that. On top of that, he also has written Siding In on the Zodiac Killer, Unmasking America's Most Puzzling Unsolved Murders within the last year. So he is a great guy to talk to about the potential of these cases being linked. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Drew Beeson. Drew, the last time we spoke was in August of 2019. I'm sorry, April of 2019. So it's been just a little over a year now. And uh, the, other than that, the world is a completely different place. Um, what have you learned about Ted Braden? You know, quite a bit from the from the last podcast. Of course, when you write a book, you learn a lot more just going through the process. And you want to get all your facts straight and make sure you heard it right and kind of go back to your you know, original sources and things like that. So, um, you know, I learned just you know, Quite a bit, just kind of getting into his uh, his personality and the mystique of Ted Braden, and you know the, the kind of trying to get into his mind, so to speak. And for me, he always just lined up with DB Cooper. I mean, I know you as a, a big fan of DB Cooper and, and the uh, the mystique of DB Cooper. To me, Ted Braden just fits that so well. You know, I don't want to I don't want to DB Cooper to be this guy that's not really cool. You know, like some of these other suspects, they just don't have this kind of suave total badass edge to him you know and, and ted Braden has that so i am a little biased because i'm such a fan of the the legend of db cooper the folk hero of db cooper and Braden just kind of matches that up he's a dark character i'll admit that but he had the refinement and he had the skills he had the just and i learned so much more about that you know he was really concerned about his appearance all the time and you know he kept in really good shape for a middle-aged guy would do 100 push-ups every morning on a flat board when he was in Vietnam and stuff like that. So it's just, uh, he just so fits the the, the daring D.B. Cooper with this, uh, you know, polite to the stewardesses. And that's how Ted Braden was. I mean, he just fits it so well. And, uh, you know, from last time, I uh, really got into his mind a little bit more and, and heard more stories about him. And, and another thing I brought forward that wasn't known before was more photographs of Ted Braden that looks to me so much more like uh, all the composites of D.B. Cooper, uh, particularly one that was taken of him in 1975, just a few years after the Cooper skyjacking, where he's you know is he's got really dark skin. Mom? 
that's the one with his mom. Yeah, he looks so much like the sketch there. And you can tell versus his mom how dark his skin is. He's got that really dark skin. Now, now another D.B. Cooper candidate has that as well, which is L.D. Cooper, you know, Marla Cooper's uh, uncle. He's got that really dark skin. But Ted Brayton had it, too, in the mid-'70s. And I don't know if that's because he spent so much time in Vietnam or or afterwards, but he had that really dark skin. My grandfather was like that. For a, for a white man, he had very just dark skin from playing football for years and years and coaching football. It's had that dark, leathery skin. And looking at Braden in that photograph versus his mom, he had that going. And that's one of the most overriding physical uh, features of D.B. Cooper that came from most witnesses was he was swarthy, was a term you see a lot. When you read the FBI descriptions that came from the fellow passengers on the flight, a lot of them say dark skinned, uh, swarthy used a lot. Uh, some said you know, one of the, one of them said possibly Native American blood or you know, but they you know, all described him as being you know white. But they said his his skin was dark. So I was really excited to see that photograph because that kind of helped his cause as far as that description of a of a dark skinned man went. Yeah, in your new book, Paratrooper of Fortune, the story of Ted B. Braden. One of the things I really enjoyed was that there were so many pictures. And it was so cool to see, you know, Ted Braden and Hetrick and J.D. Bath and those guys, you know, in the 60s and early 70s in Vietnam. It was really cool. Yeah, it really was. I mean, finding that and and part of the biggest breakthrough that I made, and this was after the, the first podcast that we did, was that I was on a search to find out who his mother was. And that wasn't easy because what I found out was is that his mother got divorced or at least separated initially from his father uh, pretty soon after Ted was born. He was pretty young at the time. He was, I think he was like one years old or something like that. And his mom got remarried pretty soon after. And, you know, so her name changed. So that made it a lot harder to track her down, you know, who she was. And I finally found her somehow, just got lucky one day. And uh, she had an obituary and that kind of gave out some names and, uh, led me and I was also working with Hank Birch who you know was was looking after Braden when he was incarcerated at Fort Dix and I would you know Hank worked a lot on the background and really helped me a lot with his daughter helped him as well so a lot of this research but when I found out who his mother was I was ecstatic and I emailed the obit to Hank and uh, Hank found the mother on Fine Grave and we found out that his uh, that Ted Braden's nephew a guy named Mike Deerbaugh was out there on Fine Grave so we got a hold of Mike and Mike was this treasure trove of stuff you know, regarding his uncle and had pictures of him as a baby. He had a picture of him in college. He had obviously that picture we talked about where he's with his mother and had a lot of information about Braden, you know, as far as, as far as that side of his family went, which was so cool because he gave a lot of insight into him. He never even met him, but obviously heard so many stories about him, him being the black sheep of the family and, um, you know, divulged the fact that, that Ted B. Braden had two biological children. And the people that knew him the most did not know this about him. He had two children, a son and a daughter with his first wife. And no one knew this. And including, it, it, it looks like his second and third wives. He had three wives. He was uh, still married legally at the time of, of, of his death in uh, 2000, I think it was 2006, I believe. And uh, it looks like that his second and third wives did not even know he had two biological children. And I do know that his stepdaughter from his uh, third wife didn't even know that. And that's one of the things that helped her to even open up and talk to me. The fact that she's like, really? I didn't know that. And so she kind of opened up a little bit, which was nice because it took me a while to get a hold of her. 
But uh, you learned a lot from her, didn't you? Quite a bit, you know, and I was, it took her a while to get back to me. And uh, I was trying to get her on Facebook Messenger because I, you know, I knew who she was. She has three other sisters and they, you know, that all, you know, that all also knew Ted Braden and they're, I think they all, they're all from the same father, but they all, uh, I think at least three of them lived with Ted Braden uh, in the early seventies. He got married to his third wife. I think it was in 71 in uh, Atlantic city, New Jersey. No, sorry. It was 1970. Uh, so that was right. You know, pretty just before the Cooper skyjacking, but uh, she lived with him and said things like we lived in a, in a, in a penthouse apartment in uh, Chicago. And that's pretty impressive because at the time he was driving a truck. He was a long haul trucker. And she said her mom and Ted Braden both drove pretty, you know, new model Mercedes Benz cars. And she said he always seemed to have a lot of money. And she even as a young girl, she thought to herself, like, this guy seems to be doing pretty well. And we live pretty well for a guy that's a, you know, just a long haul trucker. So I thought that was really interesting. That's and, very um, interesting. And that's one of the things that you don't see in a lot of suspects is sudden money or yeah, living above their means in 72, 73. That doesn't come up often. I mean, you know, we talk about like Kenny Christensen, he continued to work for the same airline. Yeah, that's true. Kenny continued to work for the same airline. And I mean, there was a lot of, uh, uh, speculation that he bought that house for cash and then it turned out that there was a promissory note for part of it but you know i know when, when kenny finally passed away he had you know a pretty good you know pretty good sizable estate for a guy that was only a purser at the airline he had a coin collection so there there could be a little bit there but as far as ted braden went he liked having money and he was always looking for money no matter what he did that's what that's what separates him from anybody else his whole goal was to make money any way he could. And what he was skilled at was being a soldier and being good at skydiving, jumping out of a plane. There was no one that was better than Ted Braden at jumping out of a plane. He won multiple contests. He was obviously, uh, it says in the book, and we probably talked about before, he was a member of the Army's Golden Arrows uh, skydiving team when he was based in Germany in the early 60s. And you know they did competitions all over Europe and while in Germany, uh, Braden had a Mercedes that they would drive. You drive it from Germany to Paris for these uh, for these skydiving championships. They, would, you know, he did one in Scotland and uh, really advanced. He was in uh, European Stars and Stripes magazine, and uh, I've got all the pictures of that where he's showing all the different, you know, the the uh, positions for skydiving. You know, he was an expert on it. Even just, you know, even in the fifties, he just excelled at it. But he was. Uh, he really was the, a super soldier. He was like a Rambo. He was just that good at what he did. I mean, and, and, and when he was in Vietnam, he was in uh, what they call MACV SOG, which is the Materials Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. And that's just a benign sounding name for the Vietnam Black Ops. I mean, the guys that went in and did the assassinations, they did prisoner uh, prisoner exchange, I mean, prisoner snatches, uh rescue POWs, they would wiretap enemy lines. In fact, Ted Braden's team, which was called Team Colorado, and Braden was the leader of that team, they call him the one zero, which is, means you're the head of the team. And then the assistant team lead, which was Jim Hedrick for the most part, was the one one. But they were the first successful uh, SOG team to go in and do an enemy wiretap in Laos. So uh, these guys were the, were the top of the badasses. I mean, no one better. 
where, where, where the SOGs in Vietnam? I mean, when you got over into Laos, when they, when you would jump in or be inserted by helicopter, you were being hunted immediately. I mean, those guys were looking for you. And if you got killed or if it was what they would call a positive capture, sometimes your own friendly, uh, fire would come in and kill you just so you wouldn't be apprehended because they weren't supposed to be fighting in Laos because it was against the Geneva uh, convention rules. So these guys were extremely tough and uh, there was nothing like them. I mean, they were just elite. And uh, when it came to Brayden, you had legends out of SOG, a guy named Billy Waugh, who was just this total super soldier with all these accolades and who was part of that. And another guy named John Plaster, who was, you know, his nickname's Plastic Man. He wrote a lot of books about SOG and, you know, and what they did over in Laos. And this guy's just highly decorated, still alive. There's a lot of uh, videos with guns and shooting and, and uh, special forces stuff. And when I first read that these two guys, when the, the subject of D.B. Cooper came up, they automatically said Ted Braden. And they don't think they based it on that just knowing for sure, but they just said, we're these elite soldiers and we're like two legends of this of special forces, but this guy's in a league of his own. And when I read that, I'm like, I want to know more about this guy. When these two legends point to this guy as being the one that could have done the Cooper heist because, because of his skill set, because of his calmness under pressure and just the ingenuity to come up with the Cooper heist, they immediately thought of Ted Braden. And what was really, I would want to hammer home about that is you never hear of a number two guy or number three guy, or it could have, you know, Ted Braden. Yeah. But it could have also been, you know, James Douglas or Walter Smith. You know, it's never that you never hear that. It's always Ted Braden, Ted Braden, Ted Braden when it's coming from special, you know, ex special forces and not just those two legends, but other guys that were in special forces all say the same thing. Braden, Braden, Braden over and over for Cooper. It's, it's, it's just like, how can you not look at that? Because the whole thing looks like a special forces, you know, planned deal. The whole way he carried it out. And it was, he was just so smooth about it. He just, like I was saying before, Braden just so lines up with that. He was a gentleman, you know, and Tina Mucklow described, you know, how D.B. Cooper was such a gentleman. And, you know, some people tried to say, no, he was just this common crook. No, she said that, that, he, that he didn't have that. He was, he was a gentleman. And one thing I learned about Braden was uh, from Al Tyre, who was his, you know, one of his jumping partners in the Golden Arrows in the early 60s. He said, when you were at a bar or a restaurant or something like that, and a lady walked into the room, Ted Braden would always immediately stand up when a woman entered the room. And he said, one day they were at a bar and a lady walked in and Al did not stand up immediately. And he, he tore Al a new one over it. Like, you don't ever do that again. Like, when you're in my presence and a lady walks in the room, you stand up. I mean, and Al said, I never, ever made that mistake again in front of Ted Braden. He was that way with, with women. And he said, that's one of his hard and fast rules. Lady walks in the room, you stand up. I mean, he was old-fashioned like that. And he said he was also meticulous about how he dressed. He said, if you did not see Ted in his regular uniform or his jumpsuit, he said you would just assume he was either a colonel or a college professor. And I've heard that from three other people that knew Braden that said, yes, if you saw him anywhere else other than his regular, you know, whatever fatigues or a jumpsuit, he was dressed like a colonel or a college professor. You heard those two over and over because he carried himself like that. He had that sophistication about him. Every time he spoke, he really thought about what he was going to say. He would just internalize things. You know, he, he wouldn't just speak off the cuff he would really think about what he was going to say before he said it 
And that just really, really lines up with Cooper, who was calm. His words were measured. He didn't cuss. Uh, totally calm. And, you know, it's like when you study the, the Cooper skyjacking versus uh, Richard McCoy, they're just total polar opposite events. Richard McCoy, who, you know, did his skyjacking four months after Cooper, was a nervous wreck. He was putting on makeup in the laboratory. People could see that he had makeup on. He was a mess. He was, you know, it was just completely different. D.B. Cooper was calm. And when you read the FBI files, I mean, he had a couple of moments when they were taking a while to refuel, as you know. But he, he was calm under pressure. So, uh, so it just fits a guy like that. Special Forces not worried about making that jump. And Braden was the guy. He could have made that jump at night. He could have made that jump into bad weather. Remember, he's used to jumping in Vietnam at night into into heavy enemy territory where he was being hunted. As soon as you hit the ground, you're being hunted. I mean, to be wiped out and killed. And, you know, and usually they were in six to eight man teams. And uh, so the stress part of that would have been nothing for Ted Braden. I mean, zero. I mean, he was just that good at it. Uh, I mean, 700 log free falls. That's a lot of jumping, I mean, into into really thick stuff. So it's just, I just really reiterated more what I learned about his, his abilities. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, he was definitely a veteran by 1971. I mean, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. He was in the MACV SOG. He was in the Navy and the Marines. Is that right? No, he was he was he was in the Air Force for a short period. He was not in Korea. Okay. He he uh, joined a fight in World War II in the 101st Airborne. The Screaming Eagle, Screaming Eagles was their name out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And he was 16 years old, lied about his age, and went over to fight. And he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And it was great that I've got a photograph of that time of him that's in the book that I got from his cousin, which was really neat. But uh, so yeah, he was he was already a combat vet by the age of 17 heavy combat and um you know but he was on and on in in the in the you know mostly the army all the way up through vietnam and then obviously he went to go fight as a mercenary but the interesting part about world war ii was is it's where we think he met uh general john singlob who wasn't a general yet but he was uh in the uh i think it was the oss which was the predecessor to the cia or our special forces and uh i think that's where he met uh General Singlob, who it looks like was probably the person that was always protecting Ted Braden, because as you know, we spoke about in the first podcast, Ted Braden uh, deserted from Vietnam at the end of 1966. It was December of 1966. He told his, his team that he was going into Saigon for a debriefing and he never came back. And uh, according to, you know, then Ted picks up the story in an article in Ramparts magazine that came out in 1967. And Ted tells the story of leaving Vietnam, going to fight in the Congo as a mercenary. Uh, he gets picked up by the CIA in the Congo. He gets interrogated for, he gets interrogated for three days and then uh, ultimately comes back and he's confined at Fort Dix. And that's where Hank Birch enters, which I know Hank now, I know you've spoken to Hank before, which that's when Hank got totally fascinated by the whole topic of Ted Braden because here's Ted Braden. He's confined now at Fort Dix for desertion from Vietnam after being, you know, fighting in the Congo. And he recalls Braden being in a cell with a TV set. He's I mean, in, in a military jail. He's got a TV set. He said, that's unheard of. He said he couldn't believe it. 
He said Braden had cigars, you know, he had filtered cigars. I mean, filters were strictly forbidden at Fort Dix because they would stick them in the toilets and make, you know, the toilets blow up. The prisoners would. He said, Braden looked at him one day and said, don't worry, sir, this will all work out. He just had this, this sense that nothing bad was going to happen to him. It's like, and he was set to be court-martialed. So it came the day of him, you know, the scheduled court-martials, and then all of a sudden he said, uh, the court-martials canceled. And, and, and they said, well, why? And they said, well, there's not enough MPs here on base. And Hank was like, are you kidding me? This is Fort Dix. There's MPs all over the place. It was just contrived. It's like someone made a call or something. And he, I can remember Hank knew the name of whoever put the order in, but they basically said, just go ahead and discharge him. They gave him a, you know, a, a general discharge, which is just under uh, honorable discharge, and said, you just you have to, to promise never to join the Army again. And Brayton actually balked at that. He didn't even want to take that deal. Can you believe it? I mean, you desert from Vietnam, and they're giving you a general discharge and just say go, and all you have to do is promise never to join the military again. And Brayton balked at it. Because he, they had a watch. He had some kind of special watch that they took off of him when they got him in the Congo. And he was holding out to get the watch back. I have no idea what that watch could do, but he wanted it. I don't know if it was sentimental or something the CIA gave him, but he wanted it back. And uh, he, he held out for a while, but finally just took it. You know, just give me my general and I was, you know, and he was gone. But he was still bitter about it. And here's this guy. All these skills, master master parachutist. Now that's what he was. He was considered a master parachutist. He was got good at it. Now what's he going to do for money? You know, he 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 has money. He has a lifestyle. What's he? He's got to figure out a way to make a bunch of money with these skills. So you know, like I mentioned in the first one again, that takes me to DB Cooper letter number six, because the more I read that letter, I'm like, and then I read the Ramparts article which is written by uh, the military editor of Ramparts Magazine, which is an ex-Vietnam veteran named Donald Duncan. And he was an anti-war guy. He was also in MACV Saga, Vietnam Special Forces. He got really disenchanted with, with the Vietnam War and the reasons they were fighting it, came back to the States and was writing for this kind of a anti-government magazine called Ramparts. And uh, he, so he knew Braden from, you know, over there. So he decides to interview Braden for the magazine. So he writes the forward to the entire article. And then Braden starts writing from his point of view, starting leaving Vietnam and, and fighting in the Congo. And me familiarizing with, you know, how Ted Braden speaks, which is, you know, the way he's writing in that, uh, so much reminded me of what they call D.B. Cooper letter number six. And if you know the D.B. Cooper letters really well, there's only two of any any length at all to them that are typed. That's what is called letter number five and letter number six. And uh, those two letters are totally different. Now, what makes letter number six stand out with the D.B. Cooper letters is it's not signed D.B. Cooper. All the previous five letters are all signed D.B. Cooper. I mean, I think the first one was uh, from Reno. It was sent to the Reno paper. And it was like, uh, stuck in a rut. Uh, thanks for the hospitality. And it was signed D.B. Cooper. And then number two was the Grey Cup letter. Just got back from the Grey Cup or whatever. That was signed D.B. Cooper. All of them were, even number five. But number six was signed a rich man. So you know something right there has changed because this is a different writer. The first five letters are probably just copycats, hoax, whatever you want to call them, but six stands out on its own. And the more you read six and you know about Ted Braden, watch, I mean, I just even more convinced that Ted Braden wrote this letter. I don't know why he wrote it. Maybe just to say, hey guys, stop looking for me. 
But uh, I am convinced that Ted Braden wrote this letter. And when you combine that with the fact that he had these skills to pull off the jump, to me, that puts him head and shoulders above any other suspect. And I know them all. You know I do. But uh, it's interesting. I'll read part of it. He says, it was sent to the Portland, Oregonian newspaper on March 28, 1972. So it's the last, I think it's the last known D.B. Cooper letter. There might have been something that came after that, but I don't think so. And it says, gentlemen, this letter is to let you know I am not dead, but really alive and just back from the Bahamas. So your silly troopers up there can stop looking for me. That is how just how that is just how dumb this government is. I like your articles about me, but you can stop them now. D.B. Cooper is not real. So remember, all these other letters are signed D.B. Cooper. So this guy's saying D.B. Cooper's not real. And then he goes on. I had some, I had to do something with the experience uncle taught me. So here I am, a very rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to world idiots and no work for me. I had to do it to relieve myself of frustration. I went out of the system and saw a way through good old Unc, UNK. Obviously, he's shortening Uncle Sam. Now you know, I am going around the world and they will never find me because I am smarter than the system's lackey cops and lame duck leaders. Now it's uncle's turn to weep and pay one of its own some cash for a change. And please tell the, co the lackey cops, D.B. Cooper is not my real name. And it says, sincerely, a rich man. That letter stands out completely different than the first five. And it just echoes Ted Braden, who was always looking for money and doing something with the skills that uncle taught him. Uh, the, the military taught, you know, brought out in Ted Braden what an awesome paratrooper he was, master parachutist, all these awards, trophies for, 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 for skydiving, jumping out of a plane. No one was better. Like when he got to Vietnam and he could, you know, not have to follow the rules, he could pull under a thousand feet, which was, which was insanity to do that. He was a pioneer of halo jumping, which is high altitude, low opening. He was a pioneer of that technique. He taught it over in Vietnam when he first got there as part of project delta so those words just echoed and i just i was convinced that ted braden wrote that and here's what he wrote and I, I know i did this in the first podcast but it's just so important this is what he wrote in ramparts and this is actually the last paragraph of the ramparts article written by ted braden he said i need work and i don't mean driving somebody's truck there is a great need for people with my talents but unfortunately the cia is doing the hiring or the others because of the cia lack the funds to make a contract interesting. Evidently, I'm on the agency's blacklist and that makes it difficult to contact other employers from this country. Those can use my help in Latin America are trying to fight using indigenous and foreign idealists, which means no money for the professionals. It's too bad Strasner, Rojas, and Somoza are in so tight with Sam. There it is, Sam. Remember, the D.B. Cooper letter says Unk, just Unk for Uncle Sam, which is really rare to cut Uncle Sam into, into, into just Unk. Well, here he is saying Sam in quotes, meaning Uncle Sam. He's cutting that word down again. And that's Braden versus D.B. Cooper. And he says, otherwise they would pay well. See, with Braden, it's all about money. I'd like to go back to the Congo, but I don't think they'll let me. Too bad because the anti-Motubu boys are making a bundle. See, Braden was all about money and using those skills. That's why he went to fight as a mercenary in the Congo. It really seemed like being a warrior was the job he loved. Oh, yeah, he, he definitely loved the adrenaline. But like he said, I didn't go to Vietnam for the glory. I went for the money. He said, I liked the, the first class thing, but I, he, but I was there for the money. And when he heard they, that the uh, mercenaries were getting paid good money, 
to go fight in Africa, he was on board. He thought nothing about leaving Vietnam to go do that. So there he went. He just leaves. I mean, that's all about money for Ted Braden, not for glory. He did love, he loved the adrenaline rush. And he was great at that. But at the end of the day, he wanted money. This guy was always after money, money, money. Like Donald Duncan said, like when he came to the Ramparts offices, he goes, you know, Ted came and, you know, he was looking for something, you know, meaning he wanted some money from me. And funny there, too, when he comes in, he calls Donald Duncan Dunk, which is like unk out of the letter because Donald Duncan never went by that. His name was Don. He went by Don. So here's Braden. He's always trying to make people, you know, like they're closer to him than he really is. But, uh, there he is calling him Dunk, you know, because he just like the shortened names, which is just another thing that, that ties into that. But, uh, yeah, he was definitely a warrior. I mean, that's what he was good at. So when he was forced to leave the Army and he couldn't join again, what's he going to do? I mean, he's driving a truck for Consolidated Freightways at the time, This, you know, in, in, uh, in 1971. And I remember that in, in Bruce Smith's book, which is a great book, um, it's one of the Bibles of the D.B. Cooper case, D.B. Cooper and the FBI. He, Absolutely. Uh, it's a great book. And he talks about, you know, I think Bruce got a hold of his, his last wife there, uh, Pauline Braden. And she remembers saying something like, oh, yeah, I, I, when it, when I remember because they were married at the time of the Cooper skyjacking in November 1971. And she said, I remember when the Cooper skyjacking happened. And heck, yeah, I thought it was him. You know, it just it just seemed like something he would do and could have done. So there he is. Obviously, he wasn't home for probably Thanksgiving Eve in 1971. But it's like Bruce says, you'd be shocked about you know how many men weren't home for Thanksgiving Eve or maybe Thanksgiving itself. But Braden is a long haul trucker; would have always had a reason to be gone, and he was gone a lot. But um, and I doubt, based on his personality, he was checking in with anyone where he was. No, no, not at all. And uh, you know, going back to the stepdaughter. Um, you know, she was talking to me and she said, one of the first things that before I even said why I was contacting her, she said, yeah, did you know that he was considered to be D.B. Cooper? And I was like, yeah, that's kind of why I'm talking to you. And uh, I said something along the lines, did you ever ask your mother if he was D.B. Cooper? And she said, yes, I did. I asked her point blank. I said, was Ted D.B. Cooper? And she said, yes. I mean, just a emphatic yes he was you know like like you know now that it's him and, and i was like wow this is great right and then she told me but she did have the beginning of alzheimer's disease then i was like oh no so i just like well how confident were you that she was you know still lucid enough and she said about 50 50 she said it hadn't totally taken her over and it was the beginning of it but she felt that her mother was being truthful her mother believed that, that, that ted Braden was db cooper well, what you t- you touched on earlier when talking to these Mac v. Sog guys, they all point to him. And if you're talking about this elite of the elite crew in Vietnam, I'm going to say most of those guys could have pulled off the skyjacking. But the issue is how many of them are the kind of guy who would commit that type of a crime on U.S. soil for money? And that number is probably very small. It's very small. I mean, over there, yeah, you're right. There was a lot of good jumpers, especially in MACV SOG, and who had the knowledge that a 727 could be jumped. And, of course, the MACV SOGs did. Now, you know, Air America had, I think Air America had five. At some point, I think the most they had was, were five 727s. 
and they were jumping him pretty early. Now, remember, Braden's gone from Vietnam by the by December of '66, and I don't think, from what I know, there weren't a lot of heavy use of using you know guys jumping out of the 727 at that point. I think some of it came later, but he he absolutely would have known people back in Nam that could have told him that it could be done uh, if he didn't actually do it over there. You know, they would yeah, have, he would have absolutely with known that would have done it. Yeah, that's true. And as you know, the pilots didn't even know the plane could take off with the Astier down. And D.B. Cooper absolutely did. That's why there was no an argument. No one at the airport knew. No one they at the airport knew. Yeah, they had to call Boeing. The, the pilots absolutely weren't going to let it happen. They fought it. Like, they had no clue that that plane could take off with the Astier already down. And, of course, Cooper wanted it down because it was just less, you know, less thing to worry about once they got airborne. Because, you know, when they did get airborne, I think he had to have Tina help him do the lever to actually lower the Astaire. But other than that, he knew everything else about the plane. And if he, you know, if he was jumping to Vietnam, he wouldn't have had to have opened up the Astaire. They would have had another guy there on the plane doing it for him. Which reminds me of another story that Bruce had a while back where a guy, one of the pilots from Vietnam said he remembered that they used a tube. And they would uh, jump out of the 727 and there was like 20 guys on board. And the guy said... I don't know who D.B. Cooper was, but you know, I, but I bet the farm that it was one of these 20 guys that were jumping out of the 727 and using this little little slide over the Astor that they would just, you know, lay on and just kind of kind of shoot out. And one of the ways, and I know Mark Messler talked on one of uh, your shows about how they would do it, and they called it squidding out, where you would open up the Astor and just and pull your ripcord and just kind of let it kind of flow out looking like a squid. So then you knew your parachute was going to work because you were still pretty much on the stair and then you would jump and it would just kind of fill up. So that's, that's, you know, what I think he even thinks that's probably what happened or what Cooper did coming out of that plane. It's just, just squitted out with that parachute. Yeah. There's of, a bunch of, of YouTube videos of people doing that. Cause when he told me that I couldn't really picture what he was talking about, but there's a bunch of YouTube videos of people doing that same thing, not necessarily from 727s, but in the same manner. So, yeah, yeah, it, it, that it, out on YouTube. yeah. But, but going back to the the saw guys, um, there's a guy here locally, and we'll, you know, and he's the only name I don't want to I don't want to release because he told me this, and and it's one of those things that you you hear and you may say, yeah, right, but this is true, and I don't embellish anything. I mean, any of my books, I mean, it's it's has a, as I was you know it's told to me, but I was put in touch with this uh, special forces researcher who's written books on it, but he's he's like a clearinghouse for for anybody that ever served in special forces. I mean, I wanted to check and make sure that, that uh, Richard McCoy was actually in special forces because I've seen it, you know, it's written about a lot, but, but I went, went to one website that actually questioned it. Obviously, he was in Vietnam. He was an incredible helicopter pilot, as is Robert Rackstraw. But I did, you know, tell him, like, can you check Richard Floyd McCoy for me? And he wrote back and said, yeah, he was briefly in special forces in 1964 for his first tour. Uh, but anyway, we... Yeah, you know, I think uh, I've seen a picture of him as a Green Beret. I've never seen one where he was actually wearing his beret, um, but I, you know, but obviously, yeah, he was. He was. He was in special forces in '64 for his force tour, but none of the none of the rest. The rest were strictly a helicopter pilot. Um, but anyway, we were talking about Braden and what the guy said about Braden, and this guy was personal friends with all these ex- special forces guys, like John Plaster that I mentioned earlier, and. Uh, you know, so so when I you know he calls me on the phone after I emailed him and we're talking about Ted Braden, 
And he's like, yeah, I've heard of him. And I, you know, I've heard that, that he's considered to be DB Cooper from special forces guys. Cause he's ex special forces. He wasn't a, he wasn't a Mac V saw, but he was, he was in the special forces during the same time. Didn't know Braden. So uh, he calls John Plaster and says, yeah, I'm talking to this guy about, about Ted Braden. And he gives him, you know, some background on Ted Braden. A lot of it's already known. He kind of told him about what happened at Fort Dix. Cause he probably read it on the internet or something, but uh what he told him on the phone, he goes, I know something about Ted Braden, but I can't tell you over the phone. And he's like, why? He goes, I just can't. I have to tell you when I see you in person. And he was just like, please tell me, you know, come on, that's ridiculous. You know, come on. And he just said, no, I have, I have to tell you in person. I can't say it over the phone. And, you know, he hasn't seen him yet because I don't know where Placer lives. This guy lives around me here in Houston, but Placer, I don't even know what state he's in, but it's not near here. Plus you have the whole thing with the you know, with the virus going on, but that grabbed my attention because this guy is a sharp guy that does this research. He's not just going to blow smoke on me and said that he heard that. So I was like, what is it? You know, is it Cooper related or what is it? But uh, hopefully, but if I ever find out, you'll be the first one I call. I appreciate that, Drew. <laughs> if you had to guess what it was, what would be your guess? I don't Pure know. speculation here. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it could be something even deeper than just being D.B. Cooper. Because Braden's the kind of guy, and Jim Hedrick told me this. He said that that uh, you know he felt that Braden was mainly being protected, not just because of what Braden knew about special operations in Laos and, and and things they were doing there, but he said he knew things that were going on globally that the CIA was deep into. Like he had all the dirty laundry globally on, against the CIA. So he was a guy because. Uh, Actually, this is this is what I didn't know with the first podcast. Another thing that I didn't know: Braden murdered a guy in Vietnam. He was a, um, uh, a Republic of, of Vietnam soldier, you know, South Vietnamese, not not the enemy NBA, but but a South Vietnamese soldier uh, or part of our, our unit that was kind of an offshoot of that. But you know, a friendly force, right? And uh, Braden went into a village because they, they always, you know, and Jimmy even told me he said Ted Braden hated those guys for whatever reason, even though you were fighting on the same side. He said he just hated those guys. Uh, I think they were, they were called ARVN men, you know, I mean, Army of the Republic of Vietnam. And he said he just hated those guys for whatever reason. So Braden gets into it with this guy in one village and he kills him. And that's fact. He kills this guy. I don't know what, what started it, but he killed the guy. So uh, obviously it got reported to the higher ups and they basically just threw it in the trash can. They just said, no, I'm just going to let that go. And they were worried because if uh, the reporters picked up on it, they would have had to have done something to them. So they just wanted that problem to go away. They just said, literally threw it in the trash can. Like, this never happened. Because they were that scared of what Ted Braden knew. And he was, you know, just had, he was always protected. Just like when he went to the Congo and got let out with the general discharge. It was like he had the goods on a lot of people. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't have just tried to kill him. Maybe he was so smart. He said, hey, you kill me. I got six guys that are going to put a package in the mail. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't just kill him because I don't think they would have any qualms doing it, but they were they feared him. They feared him. So if you go to D.B. Cooper and if Ted Braden was, and I can't say beyond the shadow of a doubt that Ted Braden was D.B. Cooper. I believe he was, but you have to look at it. If there is a conspiratorial angle going on or maybe they do know who D.B. Cooper was, if it was Ted Braden, they would have definitely protected him because look at the protection he's always had. So Braden would have known pulling that caper off. If he got caught, he knew he wasn't going to go to jail for it because he was just going to pull up the old, hey, I'm going to tell your dirty secrets. You're going to have to let me go again. So he would have had that confidence. 
if I get caught for the skyjacking, or you catch me with the money, or you catch me uh, down at the Tina Bar planning the money, or, or wherever, he knows he's going to get off. He's got that protection, you know, and so he's got that extra confidence that, hey, the worst thing going to happen, I'm going to get caught, and then I'll just threaten to tell your secrets again. You know, which, which, which is, I think he had that going for him. Now, he did get in trouble again later. He got caught in a, a fish theft where he stole some meat and some fish and drove drove his truck over to another state. You know, he got involved in some other crimes. And I wouldn't... Wasn't it almost across the country? I thought the yeah, it was, was across like country too. to Michigan or something crazy. Yeah, it was all the way to Michigan. I mean, so he, he, he was a criminal. Um, like his uh, sister-in-law said, she quoted Ted Braden is the perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality. That was him. It just sums him up. And, uh, you know, obviously he got caught for this, this meat theft. It was meat and fish that they, that he stole from a warehouse. And he was, he was a long haul trucker, obviously. So he would use this truck to do these things. And I remember his wife telling Bruce Smith that, you know, another thing he would get involved with was, uh, staging his truck being robbed where he would, you know, uh, leave his, his trailer somewhere and schedule, you know, and, and, line up some guys to go steal his load and then they would split the profit later. So he was a criminal. There's no doubting that. And you would expect DB Cooper to be that way. I mean, I always thought that, you know, if you're going to get $200,000 and jump out of a plane with it, you're a thief. I mean, you're, it's probably going to come up somewhere in your lifetime again, you know, either before or after the event. And he had that and he did go to a federal penitentiary for a little while, but it wasn't long. It was like he got let out again. Like, hey, Ted, you're going to have to do a little bit of time for this one because, you know, everybody knows that you got caught by, like, the local police and now they know or something, and you're going to have to do a little time. I mean, we're going to let you go with something light, but, hey, you, you got to do a little bit here because we got to make it – we got to dress it up. But it does appear that he got favoritism every time, even that late in his life, which that happened probably – I can't remember. I think maybe the early '80s. So he was still getting some kind of preferential treatment because for what he did, he should have been in prison a long time, and he and he wasn't. You also talked about in your book in when he was 73 years old, he got a DUI. Yes. Um, in like 2001 or 2002, no license, no insurance, no registration, and refused to identify himself to the police. Yeah, isn't that crazy? 73 year old man. With the DWI, won't even give his name. I mean, that's that's hardcore. And I mean, I think he, he just had that kind of stubborn, you're not going to touch me. He did. He had that. I think he did have this 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 uh, kind of a uh, superiority complex where he just felt superior to them. You know, these people question him like, I'm this ex, you know, Vietnam badass and everything else. And I know all these CIA guys and, you know, whatever you're going to do to me doesn't scare me. I mean, that was just kind of the attitude he had. He just didn't fear uh, punishment. I mean, it, it's just it, he's just he's wired differently than most people. Even even these guys that went and did all that gritty stuff in Vietnam, he was still apart from them in his mind, where he could do these really crazy things, but but you know, not really feel any remorse for it. So he, he was uniquely capable of doing doing anything. It's like Jim Hendricks said. Not only not afraid of punishment, but not afraid of death either. No, not not afraid of death either. I, I can't remember. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember what Donald Duncan said about him. He said it was a. Uh, he didn't fear death at all. He, he said he, he he said he had a Ted Braden had a secret death wish, coupled with incredible survival instincts. 
the secret death wish coupled with incredible survival instincts. I'm paraphrasing that, but it's pretty much exactly what he's, you know, close to what he said. Like he, he could do these insane things, but he manages to live every time, like pulling under a thousand feet, all these skydives and stuff. And he, he just, you know, it's like he didn't fear death, but he always came out on the other side. He always survived. Like when he would take his unit into, into Laos and get under heavy fire, uh, Jim Hedrick told me that, that Ted would do things that were just crazy. Like he would always get on the main path over in Laos. He's like, man, you're going to get us killed. That's where they're looking for us on the main path. He said, Braden didn't think twice about it. He said he had, they had a, scar, a starlight scope over in Vietnam where, you know, it's kind of the you know, early version of night vision. He said that Ted got angry one day that it wasn't working and he smashed it on the ground, you know, all the pieces. And Jim's like, man, they can find us with that. They're tracking us already. If they see those broken pieces of glass, they're going to say, oh, they went that away and kill us all. And he said that Braden never thought about that stuff. Like, he just never worried about it. And Jim's like, I can't believe the guy didn't get us all killed. He, he, you know, the, what he would do in Vietnam. I mean, just like he had no fear of getting killed. And he always came out of just incredible odds. Like, surely this guy's going to get get killed or get the whole unit killed. But he, but he manages to come out of it alive. It's It's very similar through his whole career. A point you made in your book that I thought was really important that I haven't really heard brought up before was that you have a lot of suspects in the D.B. Cooper case who jumped out of airplanes in the military, but most of them only had a couple of jumps or they only did static line jumps and not in Vietnam. They didn't have recent history. Exactly. So if it had been 15 or 20 years since you had jumped out of an airplane, would that be your plan? Exactly. I mean, you look at a lot of these other suspects and you're like, they just don't have the jump experience. I mean, a static line jumper from World War II, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure, and you know, I don't want to be going in 100%, but Kenny Christensen only jumped, is being trained for World War II. He never fought in combat. He was going to go to the Pacific and the war ended before he actually saw any action but uh, he even wrote a letter to home about how he dreaded it he dreaded it just just the uh, static line stuff i mean that guy's gonna jump out of a 727 no less in 1971 it's just it's hard to fathom uh there's really only two suspects that i know of that were avid jumpers that could have easily done the, the jump and, and and uh it's it's sheridan peterson and ted braden and uh, they're different in the fact that Sheridan Peterson was more of a, of, of a you know, civilian type sport jumper as opposed to Braden being a military guy. So you could ask the question. We know that uh, D.B. Cooper chose a military parachute, uh, NBA. I think it, it, I think they say it was a C9 canopy. And, you know, when you get into the D.B. Cooper parachute, you could have its own separate vortex. <laughs> you call it the parachute vortex about, you know, somebody claims he took the dummy chute that was sewn up. And, you know, there's all that stuff about Earl Cossey and and, uh, and uh, all that, you know, that gets so crazy. But uh, we know we took at least an NB8 uh, pack or whatever. And, you know, the, when, when that came out, you know, through the years of D.B. Cooper, they always said, well, well, he took an unsteerable parachute. He took an NB8, a military chute. Well, when I talked to Al Tyre, who jumped with Braden in the early 60s in the Golden Arrows, who was a really accomplished jumper himself, he said, I could steer. He said this to me on the phone. He said, I could steer an NB8 all day long. Are you kidding me? He goes, from what we were used to, we were, we used pilot emergency chutes mostly. And I've got a picture of Braden wearing one of those in the book. 
And he said, I could steer an NBA eight all day long. It's just what you're used to. He said, he goes, we, he goes, Ted Braid would have had no problem steering a military shoot. And obviously that's a better choice for coming out of a 727. And I know uh, your guest, Mark Messler, talks a lot about this stuff. Highly recommend that that show because it just, it really builds the case for someone like a Ted Braden and a, and a military jumper. But going back to your point, a lot of those guys haven't jumped since World War II, and you're going to then jump out of a 727 when you're a static line guy? I mean, that does not prepare you that. D.B. Cooper was a highly experienced free-fall parachutist. There's just no doubt about it. You, would, you wouldn't even think about coming out of a 727 with that limited experience. But So I, I, I won't even really entertain many of the suspects that haven't had somewhat of a recent avid skydiving. I mean, Peterson had it for the most part, and Braden had it in spades. I don't think any of those other guys do. I mean, name a name. I don't. I, don't, I mean, obviously, Walter, Walter Recker did. He, he was a jumper, but uh, he has some of his own problems. But I don't even think Recker was that recent of a jumper. Uh, but he did have, you know, he did have free fall experience. So I don't want to leave him out. But, I, but outside of that, I can't think of really any others. Yeah, I can't think of any others either. Um, McCoy did some. Sports. Obviously, McCoy. Yeah, McCoy definitely did some. I'm glad you brought him up. Uh, you know, when you talk about McCoy and you read that, and I, and, I, and, I, and I wrote a lot about that, it's just, it's night and day different. And McCoy looked nothing like the sketches at all. I don't hang my hat on the sketches, but McCoy looks nothing like it. He had really big ears. That was on his FBI poster. He was teased about his ears when he was younger. McCoy had a lisp because he didn't have that piece of skin under his tongue. And, and, you know, just the way that his whole skyjacking played out was just so different than Cooper. Cooper was cool under fire. McCoy was a nervous wreck. And as we talked about before, McCoy brought his own parachute on board, which was smart because he figured if the one, you know, the ones that they would bring to him for, you know, with this ransom were, were probably being tracked, you know, had some kind of transmitter on him. So he was worried about that. So he brings his own chute on and something and, and just uh, deploys on the plane. So he can't use it anymore. So he had to use one of their chutes. But, uh, there was just a comedy of errors. Yes, he was successful. He got away with it. But it was a comedy of errors when you read the detail of what happened with McCoy. Uh, he had the, the, the hijacking instructions written on an envelope. He left it in the, wait, he left it in the waiting area at the airport. The, the agent for the airline had to bring on the envelope onto the plane and say, did somebody leave this behind? And it was literally McCoy's written hijack instructions. He left them in the waiting area. Would D.B. Cooper have done that? No way. I mean, and this would have been if it, if McCoy was Demi Cooper, this would have been his second shot at it. You think he would get better at it, not worse? Exactly. Completely different. There's it's nothing even close. McCoy bragged to a friend of his that was a Utah State trooper that if he was going to be Demi Cooper, he would have asked for uh, five hundred thousand and not just two hundred thousand, which Richard McCoy did. But he told everybody, you know, he was just so loose with it. He got caught immediately because he bragged about it. I mean, they found all but like, I don't know, $10 or so in his house the next day. If he was Cooper, where was that money? I mean, he would have he would have been found out if he was D.B. Cooper in short order. Just wasn't yeah, him. He was, he was a bad copycat and not Cooper himself. No, Cooper was cool. The only thing that's valuable from that is it sort of that and the other copycats. I mean, they all landed on the ground. So the fact that Cooper augers into the ground or he doesn't survive the jump, well, all the copycats did, and they didn't do it as well as him. So Totally different. 
I mean, anyone that says that those two are similar hasn't read the details. I mean, if you read, like I like the, the lady I quote that wrote for Skydiver Magazine, really brings up a lot of detail about how the McCoy skyjacking played out. And they're just, they're night and day different. There's just, there's nothing even close other than it's a 727 and they asked for money. That the, the, the comparison's in right there. Cooper would have never left the envelope in the waiting area. I mean, Cooper asked for the, the notes back. Uh, just, just, just brilliant. It was just planned, planned so well from the start. He just, he just, uh, he knew what he was doing, and he didn't seem to fear anything. Like you know, they said he was excited when the money got on board. Well, that 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 would sound like Braden because he wasn't worried about the jump, and he probably never saw that much money in, in one place. But uh, you know, I would, I just, I, I really did. I took Ted to to the limit, you know, and uh, I know you're familiar with the Citizen Sleuth stuff. And I really, I didn't talk about that in the book, but I really dug into it because, you know, they found the pure titanium on, on D.B. Cooper's tie when Tom K. and the Citizen Sleuths did the micro analysis of the particles on the Cooper tie. Well, of course, we don't know that that was D.B. Cooper. I mean, we don't, we know it was Cooper's tie, but we don't know that he didn't pick it up from a secondhand shop. We don't know that it came from his, his place of business. A lot of people think that, that, you know, maybe he was an engineer at some factory or something, but the interesting thing about it is the titanium that was found on there was only that, you know, the way it was made only came from one company at the time made the titanium found on Cooper's tie. It was called uh, RMI titanium, which stood for reactive metals incorporated. And that was only, that company was only based in Ohio and they had two, you know, two different locations in Ohio. One was in Niles, Ohio, and the other was in Ashtabula, Ohio, about an hour and a half North of Niles. And Ted Braden was from Ohio. He's from Toledo, but he spent, most of his life in that, you know, Ohio Valley area, the Pittsburgh, uh, all in that area, you know, and plus he was a trucker. So interesting could have been some ties there. I don't go into that, but he could be, you know, I mean, cause he was in that area a lot. And, uh, other than being in the army and the military for so long, Ted's father was a tool and die maker. He, he was a machinist for a long time working with metals and, and metal fab and his cousin told me that ted absolutely knew how to do that stuff he learned it from his uncle and his father who died in the early 60s he said ted could have easily used a press a tool and die kit and you know machinist type work where metals are cut like they found spirals on db cooper's tie so that's an interesting part of it too that i found out but i don't talk about it in the book because it's not strong enough but it's something that could be developed later but but ted knew how to use that you know and he was you know doing metals and metal work and just interesting that that particular titanium comes from Ohio. And I think Ted's the only Cooper suspect other than, um, Oh God, what's the other guy's name, but that came from Ohio. But I think, uh, it was only Ted, uh, that I could think of. I can't remember the other guy's name, but, uh, I can't think of Dwayne Weber. Dwayne Weber. Sorry. Dwayne Weber was originally from Ohio, but I think when he was younger, it was Dwayne Weber. All right. Speaking of, uh, other suspects one reason i definitely recommend your book to people and not just because i want them to be into ted braden but you go into mccoy and rackstraw and what one of the things i find so frustrating about this case is there i always hear people jump into it oh i know it it was rackstraw it was mccoy and i feel like if you really look into this case those two fall apart the quickest as suspects they fall apart very fast and 
I'm glad that uh, the History Channel re-aired not too long ago the uh, documentary about Rackstraw that was made by Thomas Colbert and based off his book about Robert Rackstraw called The Last Master Outlaw. And uh, the, the title of the documentary is called D.B. Cooper, Case Closed, You know, meaning I found him. Don't, don't look any further. It's this guy, right? And uh, I'm glad that it came on again because they never had recorded it. I watched it when it, when it originally came out, and I remember when it was coming on, I was like, I hope this guy's D.B. Cooper. I want to be convinced. I want to know who he is. And I was excited. And it started out with all this promise with this crazy story about um, these people that are at this gathering somewhere. And, and, and uh, I guess it was, it, it was in Portland, but somewhere near where, where, where Cooper jumped. And they're talking about this guy that, that, that Colbert had heard about that wrote the book and put the documentary together. But anyway, they're talking about Brian Ingram and, and Dwayne Ingram, his father, and his mother, and they said something about, hey, you see that hippie couple, hippie couple over there? They're going to find some money uh, really soon on, on Tina Bar. And, and, you know, just hearing that hook, I was like, yeah, that, just, that sounds promising. You know, like, yeah, the Ingrams were in on it. And uh, this is going to blow it wide open. But it didn't. I mean, the whole thing just fell totally short. And they get into often all this crazy tangents about the the, the the bear into winter, this count that was in the area and all that. And watching it again reminded me about how, how silly it was. And if you watch the show, they really take Rackstraw apart. I mean, there's this uh, FBI guy that's part of that show with uh, with a crime reporter. And they both you know make their conclusion at the end that it was not Robert Rackstraw, including the guy that was working with Colbert as a partner even says, yeah, sorry, buddy, you're on your own now. I don't even think it's Rackstraw anymore. So it's kind of sad in a way. You know how that that documentary ended with them even concluding that it couldn't have been Rackstraw, who had several problems against him. Number one, his age—he was 28 years old at the time. Everybody picked Cooper for middle age, mid 40s. I think Braden was 44, by the way, at the time of the at the Cooper skyjacking in November 1971. But uh, it was kind of sad for Colbert because he put so much work into it. And uh, one of the ways where I knew he was getting desperate was after the documentary aired. He came out with this ex-Vietnam uh, captain or something that said he found all these codes embedded in the D.B. Cooper letters. And the two letters that, that he drew from to find these secret codes that identify Robert Rackstraw as the skyjacker were what's called letter number five and letter number six. And he said you could find units that Rackstraw served in if you do the things that way. And then if you take certain phrases out, it'll you know the letters equal to I am First Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw. That's all nonsense. It's complete nonsense. None of it adds up to anything. I mean, it's obviously he just paid this guy a few dollars to claim that he found these codes because no one else could could even look at it and say, man, you could come up with any name you want the way you're doing this. It's a joke. Yeah, Doug Perry uh, from the Oregonian has an article where he had a code and cipher expert, I had two different ones actually, do the exact same thing. And one of them said, you know, I can make it say I am SpongeBob. Exactly. You could. I mean, literally you could. Anybody you wanted. And one of the things that I had pointed out early on, if you look at letter number five, just the way it's written normally, and, and compare it to letter number six, which I firmly believe Ted Braden wrote because of all the insult phrases and stuff, that's just how Ted Braden would speak. But letter number five is nothing like number six. I mean, they're both typed, and that's it. I mean, letter number six says – I mean, letter number five is signed D.B. Cooper. Letter number six says D.B. Cooper is not my real name. D.B. Cooper is not real. And it says, you know, I'm alive and well or whatever. It's like you don't need to say that. Because, yeah, on letter number six it says 
the first line is this letter is to let you know that I am not dead, but really alive and just back from the Bahamas. So think about that. If, if letter number six needs to tell you I'm really alive, that kind of points to the letters one through five is not being Cooper. Cause if you wouldn't need to say you're still alive, if you already wrote five letters after the skyjacking and the number five is apologetic. It says I have 14 months to live, something like that. Uh, my life is filled of hate and turmoil and more hate. And I'm sorry for what I did, but I can't go to jail for what I did. You know, this whole, it's completely different than number six. The whole sentiment of it's different. It's obvious. It's a separate writer and they're in, which just shows that they're so phony to be pulling codes out of five and six. It would have been more believable to choose one of the letters, not both. But they did. I believe you know? he went with all of them. I, I think he believes all of the letters are legitimate because he has a uh, a map in his book of how Rackstraw flew all over the place and mailed the letters from all the places. I, I didn't see that part. I remember that. With, uh, I remember Galen Cook doing that with with uh, with Gossett. I remember that he got pretty deep into that. Uh, with Wolfgang Gossett about where the letters were mailed, he was he was really looking into that pretty deep. I, I, I do remember that with Gossett, but not with Rackstraw. Well, because one of the letters is from BC, where um, they said that he had that secret um, security box. Right, Gossett. You're talking about? Yes, Gossett. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was uh, what led Galen kind of down that road. Right. And then, you know, Galen was going to write a book about gossip and everything like that. And then he just stopped. I mean, just like the guy goes, drop, drops off the radar. And I know Bruce is friends with Galen. And I know Galen moved from, uh, I guess he was in Washington State. He moved to Alaska. And he was kind of like, I'm done with the Cooper thing. He got so sucked down the vortex. He didn't want to lose any more money. And he wanted to go focus on practicing law and kind of put a little money away for, for, for the retirement or something, which can't blame him. But he did kind of drop out out of nowhere after – and I thought Gossett was a great suspect. I mean, he was really, uh, he was really my first suspect that I that I was really into because it just looked so good. Uh, it was just he just seemed so believable, and, and, and of course, Galen was so articulate. You know, he was on Coast to Coast talking about Cooper. That's what really brought me back into the Cooper fold was hearing Galen on Coast to Coast, uh, like Greg did that night you know, when you interviewed Greg Gossett. But I was just like, ah, this guy's got to be him. And then of course, you talk about. The, the secret feature of D.B. Cooper that, that Gossett had, which was spotted by William Mitchell, the college student that was on the plane with D.B. Cooper, remembers uh, that D.B. Cooper had a turkey neck. He had that extra flap of skin under his neck. And, uh, and it, that just sounds to me so believable. I know people can say whatever I want about, about, uh, about uh, Mitchell now and him getting interviews or not, but back then, that was a, a, a solid assessment of D.B. Cooper because, remember, no one – and here's another difference with McCoy. No one on the Cooper flight but the stewardesses and the flight crew knew it was being hijacked, including Bill Mitchell. Bill Mitchell had a relaxed view of Cooper, and he could he was thinking to himself, why are these attractive stewardesses fawning all over this middle-aged guy? You know, look at him. He's got this flap of skin under his neck. You know, he's an old guy. I'm this young – tall, you know, kind of bulky uh, college student. They should be over there fawning over me, not this old man. So it's just so believable that he remembered that. He remembered two distinct things about D.B. Cooper. One was that flap of skin under his neck, and the other was that he spilled a drink. And the FBI files wrote that down. They put sagging chin for the thing under his neck, and then they put spilled drink. 
he remembered that vividly back in the day. I mean, his memory not not be worth a whole lot now, but it was that when he was interviewed and he had no idea the plane was hijacked till he got off of the plane. So I do hang my hat on that flap of skin on his neck that Gossett had, and guess who else had it? Ted Braden had it, and I had one photo that I showed that where he does. So that's that's just one of the physical features of D.B. Cooper I hang my hat on because it's just such an honest assessment from a jealous guy. Why are these girls talking, you know, these cute stewardesses talking to this old man with the saggy chin? He just looks old. Why aren't they talking to me? It's just, to me, it's, it's, it's a piece I hang my hat on. I really do. But that's one of the reasons I like Gossett. And, uh, but the more you look into Gossett, you know, he had uh, survival training. He was in Vietnam, but he was a desk guy in Vietnam. He never saw any action in Vietnam. He never jumped out of a plane in Vietnam. He never fired an M16 in Vietnam. That's a fact. He was like a, a military law advisor, something like that in Vietnam. He never, he didn't see any action in Vietnam whatsoever. So I know we taught ROTC uh, back in Utah, but, um, but none of that. And, you know, going back to McCoy, obviously McCoy was a Mormon. So McCoy did not smoke or drink at all. And we know D.B. Cooper smoked, uh, smoked on the flight. Uh, if you were a non-smoker and you start smoking that many cigarettes, it's going to be evident that you're not used to it. And you're going to cough. And, and there's no record of McCoy smoking at all. He couldn't. I mean, he's in Mormon circles. He, none of them smoked. And, you know, most of them even then didn't even drink caffeine. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't uh, part of their religion to go hijack planes either. Don't get me wrong. But they definitely didn't drink and smoke. And uh, we know D.B. Cooper smoked eight Raleigh filter tip cigarettes while on that plane. Of course, the cigarette butts mysteriously went missing, as we all know. Uh, Sharon Peterson was not a smoker. And uh, D.B. Cooper was. Ted Braden was. I could, That's for a fact. He not only smoked in Vietnam, he did smoke a pipe. He smoked cigarettes. And he also smoked cigars, all three of them. Uh, I know when uh, Altair knew Braden over in Germany, I think he smoked... Uh, Benson and Hedges. Strictly then, he smoked Benson and Hedges, and he said he smoked about a pack a day all through the time that Al knew him in the early 60s. And going back to the thing about the kids, Al knew Ted well in the early 60s. Uh, he would uh, spend Christmas with him while in Germany with Ted's then wife, Mary. And uh, when Al found out that Ted had two biological children, he was just blown away. He's like, I, I knew this guy well. I can't even tell you how well I knew him. And uh, And you were the one to tell him this? Yeah, he couldn't believe it. He was stunned. He was just like, I knew this guy well. It's like, you know, we were like really close. I mean, we spent Christmas together. I knew his wife. He said it, ne he said it never came up. He never told me, hey, I've got two kids. I don't, I don't see them. I don't support them financially. Nothing. Never even mentioned it. So the, the guy could keep a secret for sure. But the, the interesting part about where Al comes back into it, obviously Al jumped with Ted in, in the Golden Arrows, very accomplished skydiver himself. Um Al runs into Ted Braden in 1973 at a truck stop diner outside of Bowling Green, Kentucky. And Al's, uh, Al walks in to get something to eat because Al's still in the military at that time. I think he's going back to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, or on his way back to it or something like that. And he's, he looks, uh, he comes up to the, you know, the, the, you know, the bar there to order breakfast. And he looks down about five or six guys and he sees Ted Braden. And he says, Ted Braden? And he said, Ted looked at him and just jumped up like, 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 like it startled him that someone knew who he was. And then as soon as Braden 
figured out that it was his old friend from the early 60s in the jumping team. He's like, you know, he calmed down. He was like, you know, little, you know, because you said got spooked really easy, which was weird. So uh, they went and got a table, you know, got off from the bar, sat down at a table, and they started, you know, just talking and catching up and uh, this and that. And then Ted said, you know, what are you doing now? He said, you know, I'm driving this truck. And he said, I want to I want to show you my truck that I'm driving now. And he said it was uh, had Pittsburgh plate grass written on the trailer. And then they, they, they talked about, I think, three or four hours. And uh, they were sitting in the front of, of Braden's cab, which, which uh, uh, Al said looked really nice. And he, he was under the impression that, that Braden owned it. You know, and it was, he said it was pretty new, had all the gadgets and everything, and he seemed to be real proud of it. And Braden looked at him and said, hey, what did you think about that D.B. Cooper thing? You know, this is in 73. And he, it's like, because they haven't talked for all those years, but they were, you know, they were jumping partners. And he said, and, 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 and Al kind of said, yeah, I, I heard something about that, but, uh, you know, I didn't really look into it that deep. And he said that he really recalls Braden being, just had this disappointed look on his face. Like, you didn't really follow D.B. Cooper? How, how could you as a skydiver not have, not have, you know, really been into that or interested in it and, and Al just didn't pick up on it? And he said Braden's face was just like he was he was kind of brokenhearted, like, you weren't into that? You weren't impressed by that? Like, and, and, and Al just kind of didn't pick up on it. So Braden moved along from the subject. But Al said years later he was uh, at a jump club and there was a, a parachutist magazine that had the composite of Cooper in it. And uh, – he saw that and immediately hit him. He said, that looks like Brayton to me, like, you know, the smirk. And then that conversation back in the truck and Bowling Green came back in his mind. Like, I think he was wanting to kind of flash to me that he was D.B. Cooper, you know, by being upset that I didn't know more about it or more interested in it. When he saw that picture, he said, I never forgot when I saw that picture in that magazine of the Cooper Composite because he'd never seen it before and immediately thought of Ted. Like, that just looks like Ted Brayton to me. You know, and and Al believes that that Braden was DB Cooper. He does, with all his heart. He said, "Oh, that guy could have done that jump backward and forward, no problem." Did you talk to anyone that said, "I don't think Braden was Cooper"? No, nobody. Uh, I know that. I know when Bruce Smith originally talked to Jim Hetrick years ago, that uh, Jim didn't think it was him. Just just based on he didn't think he looked much like the composite. That was it. He nothing about the ability because they all agree he had more than enough ability. But uh, I think, it, but at the time that Bruce talked to Jim, Jim was really bitter towards Ted, really bitter about a lot of things they had gone through and almost getting him killed so many times. He just said, "Man, the guys." He, and Jim told me he's like, "Ted had the ability to be a true super soldier, but his psychological problems uh, pretty much wiped out every good accomplishment he ever had." And, and he kind of attributes that to PTSD or just some psychological problems. But Jim told me, he goes, you know, over the years, like since he talked to Bruce over the past six or seven years or so, he said, I've really, you know, changed my outlook. He goes, that was a, a really bad war. He goes, I think Ted was just another victim of a, of a very bad war, you know, and I think that, you know, and I've kind of forgiven him for all those bad things. But, uh, you know, other than that, I know I talked to Jason Hardy, who wrote uh, a lot of these really detailed books on the MACV SOGs over in Vietnam, talked to a lot of the ex-SOGs. He said, man, I'm telling you one thing. They all believe Ted was D.B. Cooper. He said every one of them believes it. And he believes it. I mean, he's going ho about it. He said the way Ted would dress, he said, he's, he said these guys firmly believe he was Cooper. He said there's not even, he said, like I said, there was no number two choice. They all believe it with all their heart. He just said they do. He just said it so matches 
his, his mainly his ingenuity to come up with it in the first place, not just executing the jump, but to come up with it, to have the idea, you know, that was, it's like to have a briefcase bomb. I think Himmelsbach said that was a game changer to have a briefcase bomb. I mean, who would, I mean, just to, just to have the, the, the mind to think of that in the first place. And, you know, when Ted was incarcerated at Fort Dix, they, uh, I remember Hank Birch telling me he saw his GT score, which was 150. And that's, stands for general technical score. It's kind of a, a good barometer for, for what your IQ is. And Hank said it only one time did he see a score higher than 150, which meant, you know, his, his IQ level was really high. Ted was extremely smart. He was a criminal, but he was a highly intelligent criminal. He could have, he could have been the guy that thought of that to use a briefcase bomb. I mean, how do you defend against that? I mean, Look at Richard McCoy. He used a, a fake grenade and a, and a pistol with one round. I mean, totally different. But but uh, D.B. Cooper had a briefcase and said, Miss, I have a bomb, and I want you to sit next to me. That's that's different. I mean, whoever came up with that, even if you believe it was this government conspiracy and they were trying to you know, make the rules of uh, you know, uh, airline uh, hijackings go down or whatever, and we're going to stage this thing, whoever came up with that, was a was a thinker to do a briefcase bomb that had never been done never this is a smart person doing this and and break just fits it it just fits it i mean how he was polite you know some people pick little things out like you know in the in the picture of uh Braden in uh in ramparts he's got hazel colored eyes and we know that florence chapter said db cooper had brown eyes so some people said oh it can't be him because it's not brown eyes well first of all when hazel eyes get into certain lower light they appear brown which is true. And Braden definitely had hazel eyes. So maybe she could have conflated it. I know I quote uh, Florence Schaffner uh, from the Unsolved Mysteries show where she says, you know, when, when I, you know, when it hit me what he was doing and hijacking this plane, she said, all I could think about was dying. You know, I thought about, I'm never going to see my sisters or my brothers again. That's all she could think about. So I don't hang my hat too much on, on eye color. Braden was 5'8". A lot of people had Cooper Taller. I know going back to Bill Mitchell, he said 5'9". So a lot of that, you know, witness descriptions aren't very reliable. But what we do know about Cooper was he was cool under pressure. And he knew all about the 727. And that and, and Braden was obviously in good jump shape. And he was remembered to be in good physical shape. He was, I mean, he was just steadfast and always staying in top physical condition, even in his mid-40s, which is rare. How many guys in their mid-40s back in 71 – could have jumped that, looked fit, and, and and had that, you know, just calmness about doing the whole thing and, and doing it so smoothly. You just really narrow the pool when you're getting into that and chose a military shoot. This is a Vietnam guy. I mean, it has to be, you know, going back to your first, the first uh, D.B. Cooper vortex with Bruce Smith, uh, D.B. Cooper was special forces. He's right. That was, it's special forces all the way. And within special forces, the elite, the MACV SOGs, knew the 727. They knew it could be jumped. They knew how to jump it. No one fits better than Ted Braden. And, you know, you'll read on some of the Cooper message boards, well, that doesn't put him on the plane. That, you know, yeah, Ted Braden was a great jumper. No one denies that, but it doesn't put him on the plane. Well, heck, if somebody could put their suspect on the plane, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would have been over a long time ago. I mean, doesn't that go without saying? We have to have, you know – all I think we can do is just put the, the best circumstantial evidence together and, and, you know, let people digest it all. But, 
And Braden had the skills. He was working for Consolidated Freightways, which was based in Vancouver, uh, Washington at the time. Uh, I don't know if truck drivers back then had to go to home base or whatever, but at the time they were based in Vancouver. And another thing I did find out is there was an ex uh, uh, Mac V saw teammate, or, or no, not a teammate, it was on a different team, but the, but in the early 60s with Braden, who lived in uh, Vancouver, Washington at the time, who was a pilot, uh, could have easily been a guy that could have helped Braden on the ground. You know, I know there's all these theories about if he, you know, jumped or, you know, near aerial or the flight path, but that's a guy that he knew from Vietnam that could have easily helped him out. He was a pilot. He lived there in the area during the time of the Cooper jump. I mean, I don't, I'm not implicating this guy. He passed away, but it's just a possibility uh, among many others. Do you think the bomb was real? Did Ted build a real bomb? I, I, I think it wasn't. I think it, it probably looked extremely real. You can remember Florence describing it, but I don't think it would have actually ever detonated. I think he was just that confident no one was going to take it that far to, to ever find out, which is probably why he took it with him. <laughs> or he could have left it as a gag, like, ha-ha, here it is. You'll see that it's fake now. But no, he took it. You know, he, he, he jumped with it. It is really interesting that he jumped with it. Because if it's fake, why not just leave it on the plane? Yeah, it's kind of a it's, it's kind of a joke, or you know, kind of a you know like a ha ha, I got away, you know, stuck stick it to the man kind of thing. Like, you know, I think the tie could have been a calling card. People wonder why, why the tie would have been left on board. Maybe that was kind of a calling card too. I don't know. I I think that he would not have made any mistakes. So I think he was just being clean. I, yeah, I, I don't think it was probably an operable bomb. I really don't. But who knows. Um, I don't. I don't really think it's an operable bomb either. I mean, when you dive into the logic, what is the reason it would need to be real? It wouldn't. And you know, Cooper was worried about the sky marshals being on there. He was legitimately worried about uh, or air marshals, whatever they were called back in the day, because they did exist then. And so that kind of leans me against this whole government conspiracy that the government set it up. You know, because of the pilots' association was 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 worried about all the hijackings or whatever. They had plenty of those that had already happened. They could, why wouldn't they just institute, you know, uh, just make it a, a new law or, or whatever? Uh, why would they need to do that? I just, I, I don't really buy into the whole government conspiracy. Oh, I mean, I do on the side of if they wanted to protect somebody. Think about all the suspects in this, from Rackstraw to McCoy, um, Kenny Christensen, any of them. Who would they most want to protect if, if, if it was known to, to the FBI or the CIA at the top levels who D.B. Cooper really was? Who would be the last person they would want anyone to ever find out that it was? Well, there's actually two Braden. suspects now. It's Braden and um, E. Howard Hunt. I, I, I never got too deep into E. Howard Hunt, but um, interesting. But Braden had the goods. I mean, he definitely had the goods. He was friends with, like I said, John Singlob, who was uh, the chief of MACB SOG during 66. And he's a, he's a guy that ordered, you know, assassinations. Like, go kill him. Go kill that general. Go kill that general. I mean, and, and he knew Braden, obviously, from World War II and from the early 60s in Germany. And that also brings me back to an interesting story that, that Al Tire told me. Because Singlob was this guy who was always looking for new ways of doing things about how to get to the enemy. I mean, he was this guy that would just take the fight to you and was always looking for these, uh, you know, these covert ways of, of damaging the enemy. And uh, one of them was jumping out of an airplane in a free fall with all your equipment on. 
because you know in World War II and like D Day, they were you know they were static line jumping with their equipment. It's different than doing it in a free fall because in a free fall with all that equipment on, you could spin out, and you know a lot of things could go wrong. But I remember being the guinea pig for Singlob in the early '60s, having to put on you know holding the gun, the heavy pack, about you know at least 60 pounds of gear on them, and doing a free fall. And Singlob wanted to see that 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 could be done in a conversation with Ted Braden and Al Tire and, 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 and Singlob, who I think it was probably a captain at that time, or maybe a major by then. I think he became a major later, eventually general, and he co-founded the CIA. But uh, but Al volunteered to jump out in a free fall with all that equipment on to see you know how it would go, and he had uh, he had Braden on his right side in case he started you know to spin out or lose control. You know Braden was there to steady him in the in the jump. So I thought that was interesting that they were already planning on these kind of a, what will become later something like the Cooper jump, because he had the money strapped to him. That was, that was additional weight. You had, if you were free falling, you definitely had to, uh, to, to know how to shift that on your body and all that. And, and, you know, that's one thing Cooper wasn't happy about when they brought the money on board, they didn't put it in a knapsack. He, you know, he had to wind up tying the bank bag to him with the shroud lines for one of the parachutes he took out a pocket knife and cut the shroud lines. I mean, that's somebody that was prepared. Um, prepared and able to it. improvise when the plan changed. Plan change, had to improvise. He wasn't happy about it, but he didn't throw a fit. He immediately took out his pocket knife and started cutting the lines out and strapping it to his body. Um, that that guy, that's, a, that's special forces all over it. I mean, just somebody that was that prepared, didn't panic, tied it around who knows what happened who knows how the money wound up on the tina bar but um you know going back to brian ingram and harold ingram obviously his father was harold Dwayne ingram they were on the you know as your your listeners know so well the tina bar money fund that happened uh later i spoke to harold ingram's boss at the time that, that they found the money and you know he was still in the area it was like he's like a uh he used to be a a, a state uh, I think a, a congressman for uh, state of Washington, and uh, he was his boss at you. Uh, I think it's called you call Concrete is where Harold Ingram worked at the time that they found the Cooper money uh, on the Tina Bar. And I asked him about Ingram. He said, "Man, I'll tell you one thing. That guy is the nicest, most solid guy I had ever met in my life." He said, "There is no way that that guy was up to anything corrupt." You know, he goes, I remember that when he found that money, he came to me. He asked me how to handle it in the media, and I was kind of advising him. He goes, I can tell you with all my heart and soul, that man is innocent. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. And that's damning to the Robert Rackstraw story because it all it kind of hinges on uh, Harold Dwayne Ingram being kind of corrupt and, and being tipped off about the money on the Tina Bar. Like when you watch the, the documentary about Rackstraw, uh, D.B. Cooper case closed, they show this video where uh, – they, they go find Harold Ingram with uh, Brian Ingram, the, you know, the, the boy that found the money on the Tina bar. And they're interviewing both of them as adults. You know, they're older now. Of course, Brian's an adult now. Obviously, his father's still an adult. But they show, uh, you know, a clip of this guy talking bad about him. Like, yeah, these, you know, these guys were tipped off about the money. And then they show Harold Ingram making, this, you know, kind of turns away like, like it's bothering him that they're telling the truth or something. But it's just not true. I mean, after talking to this guy, I'm convinced that the, the Ingrams are solid. They told it like they knew it. Uh, there's no corruption going on there. I do not think that that man was tipped off whatsoever about that money on the Tina bar. I don't.
And they referred to the incident in interviews later on as the Cooper curse. Yes, they did, because it was terrible. I mean, ever since they found that money, things just went downhill for them. Uh, The first was that Harold Ingram had bought a, you know, bought a car and was making payments on it back in their home state of, uh, I think it was in Oklahoma at the time. They they lived in Arkansas. Uh, Brian still lives there. Uh, Harold Ingram passed away, I think, uh, last December. His nickname was Slim. But anyway, uh, yeah, they, they, he had bought a car before they moved out to to where his sister lived out there in the, in the Vancouver area, Vancouver, Washington. And immediately they found out about that he was behind a payment or something on that car that he bought back in Oklahoma. And so they they made a big deal about it in the papers, kind of threatened him and made him seem like he was a thief. Uh, that was the first bad thing that happened. And then they lived in an upstairs apartment in Vancouver and it caught on fire. I mean, I think just days after the money find at Tina Bar. So, yeah, it was just bad luck. One thing after another for them. The, the money find was a true curse for them. Uh, Brian sold some of the money later, auctioned it off, made a little bit off of it because, you know, he had an ex-wife and that kind of thing going on, personal stuff. He needed the money, but didn't make any big fortune off of it. It was it was a true curse for the Ingrams that they found that money. Nothing but bad. You know, I think Brian kind of enjoyed the whole D.B. Cooper lore. But um, for specifically for his father, it was a it was a it was a bad curse. Nothing good happened from it at all. He didn't get any reward. The reward was already invalid for whatever reason. They got nothing from it. So uh, I, I I truly believe, especially after talking to his boss, who knew him really well, said, "Man, it's one of the best guys I've ever met." And I remember him like like yesterday. Just a good guy. He said that guy was honestly scared had no idea what was going on. He goes, he was, he was as shocked as I was when he found that money. He said, I know it. And that's, you know, that the whole basis of the Rackstraw theory is that Ingram was crooked and tipped off to the money, which begins the whole Rackstraw saga. So just another bad thing against him as a suspect. But I thought that was interesting that that guy was still out there and was willing to talk to me for a while. What's the best evidence against Ted Braden? The best evidence against Ted Braden is you can't place him there. You you can't. I mean, not just on the plane. I can't. I can't place him in. in uh, I can't place him in Washington State. I can't. You know, I I can't. Um, you know, some of these other guys like Peterson lived in the area, so which is you know that's that's good for him. Um, you know, but Braden, like I said, could have been anywhere. He was a long haul trucker. Uh, you know, I know I talked about letter number six. That 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 letter was mailed from Jacksonville, Florida. So. For these guys that were like Rackstraw or whoever else, or Peterson, they're from the area, uh, Ted Mayfield, may, you know, these other guys are kind of from the area. It was probably pretty easy to prove they were never in Florida. Somebody had to mail that letter, if that was D.B. Cooper, of course. But with Braden, it's really just, it's really just placing him in, in, in the state at the time. Other than well, that. Like you said, if there was someone that we could place there, then it's over. Because oh, there's absolutely. only one person on that flight manifest that we can't account for. And yeah, you can. And I and I think now that everybody's kind of coming to the conclusion over the years that he did survive. Nothing was ever found. The parachute was never found. The body was never found. No one ever went looking for this par- you know, this parachutist. No no widow ever claimed never found my husband. Uh, you know, the the evidence points to that he survived. I mean it just it just does. And just I don't definitely see it. agree with that. And I'm glad people are coming around to that. And also the fact that he wasn't a, a skilled uh, parachutist. 
I think the FBI tried to paint that narrative early on. They told this guy wasn't experienced. He had no idea what he was doing. He took the worst parachute. He, he had no clue what he was doing. Well, the years have proven that out with guys like Metzler that you had on. Uh, that That's just not true. He definitely picked the right chute coming out of, of a 727 with that velocity. A, a sports chute, probably, you know, that would have blown him all over kingdom come. I mean, of course you wanted a more, a more rugged parachute. Um, so a lot of those those myths are at least starting to go away now. But I think yeah, the, F- you know, the FBI into the cabin. She said that it looked like uh, when he was putting that shoot on, like he looked like he'd done it many times before. Yeah, so yeah, she handed him the instruction card, and he just tossed it aside. I mean, obviously he he had jumped before. I mean, you're going to jump out of a seven twenty seven, and you know, going back to Sheridan Peterson when he was interviewed uh, by the FBI, and he wrote such a good article in Smoke Jumper magazine about his experience of being a D.B. Cooper suspect. It's really well written. He's a really smart guy. Uh, he's an interesting guy. I can see why Eric Euless likes him as a suspect and in such an interesting character. That's the beauty of D.B. Cooper. All these suspects like Barb Dayton, and, you know, even Kenny, all these guys are just these amazing characters of themselves. I mean, they're just, they're fascinating. Absolutely. They, they are. Uh, but going to Peterson, um, he was when he was interviewed by the FBI years later. The, the, one of the agents said, "What's it like to jump out of a 727?" And he said, "I don't know. I've never jumped out of one." Point blank, he just says that to the FBI. Why would you do that if you ever had? Because you think they could find out. And then he said, "I have my jump log over here." He goes, "It's got the first time I ever even jumped out of a of an airplane." It goes like it's meticulous. Like every jump he ever did was in his little logbook. And he pointed to that saying, there's no 727 jump in there. I mean, he was he was confident about it. Um, plus other things in his life. I mean, the guy was a civil rights activist. He was a civilian uh, refugee coordinator guy over in Vietnam. He, he wasn't over there. I think he, he, he did jump in World War II, and he was obviously a very accomplished uh, sports skydiver. Nobody denies that. But this is a guy that doesn't didn't ever seem like he was that driven by money. You know, he lived in Nepal. If he was that concerned with money, why, you know, why wouldn't he just do it, you know, go focus on his job? I mean, he was very smart. Uh, obviously, he worked at Boeing as a technical editor, which, you know, could have given some information that, that you could have jumped out of the aft stair. Even though it's funny that when Mark Metzler did, did this, you know, the, the Vortex said he had that Boeing manual. And he said, based on what he saw in that manual, he would have told you it couldn't be done. He said, there's nothing in that Boeing 727 manual that says you can take off of the F-steer down or you can jump out of it in mid-flight. He said, there's nothing in there. That's kind of it. That, that's mind-blowing. I mean, it shows you this is knowledge from Vietnam. Um, but again, you know, a guy like Peterson just didn't seem that worried about money. I mean, this guy's more about people's rights and stuff and not just collecting money. Whereas Ted Braden, the guy's always looking for money. He's always needs more money. He just never has enough to to finance whatever he's doing, I, you know, just either a lifestyle or it's just, he was on the constant hunt for cash any way he could get it. You know, like fighting as a mercenary. I mean, he's willing to, you know, get shot at and killed just to make more money. I mean, that's all it was about for him. Money, money, and more money. That's what the jump was about. Not just, can I pull it off? It was about, I need money. And who knows what happened to the money? You know, I, I found a Ted Braden that bought a racehorse in Washington State. I don't know that it's him, but it's interesting. But um, who knows? He wasn't much of a gambler. I can tell you that. But uh, he did like to live a pretty good lifestyle. Like I said, always drove a Mercedes, lived in nice apartments, always seemed to have plenty of cash. But who knows? I mean, if it was Braden, they caught up with him, took the money back, and just said, hey, just 
slap on the wrist, Ted, just go away. Could have played out that way. You know, I read also something where these guys have a like this uh, under uh, like a, like a shadow currency uh, network. You would call it like you could take any kind of money, and it's just like uh, like an underground network of cash where you could kind of like launder it overseas, and it's kind of like this. The CIA knows about it, but it's global that that, that it could have gone into. You know, I don't know a lot about that, but someone was telling me about it that was interesting. Maybe the money went there. Oh, I, don't I definitely know. believe that. I mean, like in your book, you talk about he just kind of like shows up in Johannesburg, like, "Hey, I'm looking for work as a mercenary." Yeah, and and, yeah, he goes to the hotel bar. And just starts asking. Yeah, and that's interesting. Uh, going back to that, when he when he left Vietnam, he assumed an identity, and it was of uh, a guy named when he when he writes in Ramparts, he talks about this came uh, named Joseph Edward Horner. Now, for some reason, I looked up this guy's his name was actually William Horner, and he he was in Special Forces. He was a he was a Canadian citizen. He was from North Carolina, but he was born in Canada and still had Canadian citizenship. But he assumed that guy's name because he had heard that he was killed in a in a, in a uh, at camp, and he was launching a mortar, I guess, for practice. And the the mortar went off prematurely and killed him. So he knew the guy was already dead. So he assumes his name, and for some reason he changed the first name when he writes about it in Ramparts. But it's the same guy. But he was a Canadian citizen, and uh, so when he joins the fight as a mercenary in the Congo, he's going under the name Horner. And I even found that under uh, on an internet site that had a listing of all the mercenaries that fought over in the Congo, and you see the name Horner on it. But uh, it reminded me of the D.B. Cooper, you know, I mean, the uh, Dan Cooper comic book, which is... Uh, I was Frank- just going to bring this up. A Franco-Belgian comic. The, the comic book is, is, is Franco-Belgian, meaning it's, it's written in French. That's made for people in Belgium and France, mainly. It's the term Franco-Belgian. And it's, uh, you know, actually fiction comic book about a Canadian fighter pilot. But that comic book, from my research, was far more common to be in Belgium, not Canada. And I know there's these people always trying to make T.B. Cooper could have been Canadian because he supposedly asked for negotiable American currency. He never said negotiable American currency. That came from uh, Ratazak, the pilot. When he was filling in things, he threw out that word negotiable. And I talk about that in the book. That is a fallacy of the D.B. Cooper case. D.B. Cooper never asked for negotiable American currency. It's not written on what's never written on any of the stewardess notes. He never asked for that. That word came when when he the pilot was filling in something in an interview and just got carried through the years. D.B. Cooper never asked for negotiable currency. And a lot of people say, why would he have negotiable? He must be from Canada, eh? It's like, no, he never said it. And it was kind of like the early years when people thought that Cooper signed his ticket. And it was the agent. I mean, T.B. Cooper would have never signed anything. I mean, the guy was just too slick. Never happened. It was the ticket agent that wrote Dan Cooper on that ticket. So it's just one of those things that get, get away from you. But Dan Cooper, the, the Dan Cooper comic was far more available in, 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 in Belgium. And we know Ted Braden was in Brussels, Belgium, when he went over on his his uh, his uh, quest to get to the Congo because he went to Belgium to, to find out how to go fight as a mercenary because most of the mercenaries fighting down there were Belgians. So he could have easily run into the comic there when he was in Belgium or from some of the other fellow mercenaries because the, the vast majority of them were, were Belgian. Or if he chose that name Horner as a mercenary – Maybe he knew that guy. Maybe that guy was a friend of his and he was doing it in homage. And if it was a friend of his, then maybe he knew he liked to read the Dan Cooper comic. 
So all that is brilliant because that could be it. Because I do know that I did find it. I don't know why he changed the first two names, but it's the same guy. His actual real name was William Horner, uh, and I don't. So I don't know why Ted, when he wrote in Ramparts, put Joseph Evans. Maybe he's just trying to throw people off the trail. But yeah, the guy did die. I, I verified that. Did die in a premature mortar attack. He was in special forces. Could have been the guy was from Canada. I know that he uh, he was living in North Carolina when he when he uh, joined to go fight in Vietnam. But uh, man, I, that, that, I would I, I tried to find some people that were related to him, and uh, that would be incredible if the guy did was a fan of the comic because maybe it could be an homage to him because I do draw that correlation that uh, he chose the name of a Canadian. He took the alias of a of a of a Canadian just like D.B. Cooper did. He took the alias of a Canadian if he was inspired by the Dan Cooper comic book. Speaking of books. You uh, didn't just write Paratrooper of Fortune in this last year. You also wrote Siding In on the Zodiac Killer since we last spoke. And I'll start off with this question. Are D.B. Cooper and the Zodiac Killer the same person? I'm sad to say to some people out there that they are not the same person. I know that's going to hit a few people out there pretty hard uh, that, uh, that they're not. Is there any evidence that you found in researching both of these that can link the two cases? None. Absolutely none. Not one thing. I'm good at making connections, and I had never seen one. Western U.S., that's about it. I can't think of any, <laughs> any others. Well, that's not a very good one. Uh, the, the, Zodiac, well, the Zodiac Killer and uh, D.B. Cooper both had uh, widow speaks. Um. That's about it. They were both Caucasian males. That's about where it stops. So, uh, sorry that it's not Frank Morris that escaped from Alcatraz and that got away with some murders in the Bay Area and also jumped out of a 727 with 200000 in cash. <laughs> or Ed Edwards, who murdered everyone from Abraham Lincoln down to John Bonnet Ramsey. It wasn't him either. So, uh, no, they're not. And I know both cases very well. And, it's not the same. Not the same guy, unfortunately. How'd you get into the Zodiac? Uh, you know, kind of like Cooper. I always knew about it. I mean, Cooper was always, uh, I like better. You know, no one got killed. Uh, you know, it's all that folklore and a folk hero thing. But I like the Zodiac just because it was unsolved. And it still is unsolved, of course. But uh, I just got drawn into it. It's always something small that I either read that gets me interested in it. Like with with Ted Braden and DB Cooper, when I wrote when I when I read it was on the you know, the drop not the, not the drop zone but the DB Cooper forum it was uh, Bruce Smith and Snowman or the guys that originally brought forward you know uh, information on him. But when I read the part about that uh, Plaster and Wall thought that guy was DB Cooper, I was stuck. You know, like wow, you know this has to be explored further. And it was the same thing with the Zodiac. I was watching a video called His Name Was Arthur Lee Allen who is still the top Zodiac suspect in the, in the crimes, because that's who uh, the writer Robert Graysmith wrote the book Zodiac about. He followed it up with a book called uh, uh, Zodiac Unmasked, and then uh, David Fincher made a film based on those books. And, the, and they're all basically about a guy named Arthur Lee Allen as being the Zodiac killer. Well, uh, you know, as the years went by of this guy being a top suspect for good reason, there was, he was a very suspicious guy. He was a child molester, worked as a school teacher, would inappropriately touch the students and get fired. Real creepy guy. But uh, the man that brought him forward as a suspect in the summer of 1971 was a guy, friend of his named Donald Lee Cheney. 
and the more I looked into Donnelly Cheney, I started thinking, I think you are the Zodiac and you're just bringing your friend forward as a way to interject yourself back into this, this, uh, image you created this, this, uh, this elaborate thing called the Zodiac killer who wore this, this hood at one of the attacks at Lake Berryessa and you came up with the Zodiac symbol, not just the name Zodiac, but that cross circle that was so eerie and writing ciphers that said, I'm at, you know, my, my identity's hidden in these ciphers, these, these codes. And if you figure out the code, you'll figure out my name. I mean, brought all that lore to it. So uh, the more I looked into this guy that brought forward Arkley Allen, the more I started believing that he was the Zodiac, particularly when I saw a video where when they tested the DNA of, of Arthur Lee Allen or they were going to test it after he, he died to see if it matched up to some DNA they extracted from one of the Zodiac letters, the guy came out and said, well, I used to lick his stamps for him. And I thought, why would you say that? Why would you lick your friend's stamps for him? Well, I couldn't think of any other reason why he would have said that statement other than being petrified that his own DNA would show up. It didn't. And it was tested, and we later found out that that uh, the DNA came from outside of a stamp, so it could have been anybody's. It came from the San Francisco DNA lab, which had all kinds of problems. But anyway, when he said that, it definitely put suspicion on him. Like, why are you worried about that? And the more I learned about this guy, the more interesting he got. He was a mechanical engineer. He was highly intelligent. He worked in symbols. He he could do uh, drafting, and. Uh, you know, writing those symbols out, you would have to have used, you know, the Zodiac ciphers were done, uh, you know, he wrote symbols out, you know, horizontally, and they were perfectly lined up. And the only way you could have done that is to put graph paper underneath a regular sheet of paper on a light table or a drafting table. And back then, the layperson wouldn't have had this, but this man, Don Cheney, would have because he was a mechanical engineer. He had, uh, Zodiac talked about radians in one of his letters. Uh, uh, it's called the, with the Philip 66 map, it's called the Mount Diablo letter. And he talks about uh, radians. And this guy was obviously a mechanic. He, this guy was specifically a pipe stress analyst. So he would have absolutely known what a radian was. And then uh, the more I found out about him, it was just, it just fits so much better than his friend. He brought his friend forward just as a way to uh, kind of relive the, relive what he created. Uh, kind of like the BTK kill killer did on the 10 year anniversary of his last crime. He started mailing things to the police and to the media that eventually led to him getting caught. But it was, it was kind of like this wanting to relive what he created that was so important to him. And he used his friend as a patsy, I think, to, to say, hey, you know, look over here, Tim, it's him. And no one picked up until much later that, hey, you could be the guy we're looking for, not your friend, because he's so much better fit than his friend did who could have had some lower level involvement, but I think it was him. And now people are reading the book and it's been out for like five or six months, but people are reading it and they're like, wait a minute, he's really onto something. So it's really starting to pick up steam. So it's cool. Yeah. And you've been on a couple other podcasts and you've said that sales of the book have been pretty good. Pretty good for an indie book. You know, I'm into the hundreds and most, you know, independently published books on Amazon don't even do 50 copies. And that's probably people's grandparents and stuff, you know, um, uh, but I've sold hundreds, which is good for, for you know, and that's a specialty book. You kind of have to have a, somewhat of a background in the case. I give a little bit in the book, but it doesn't go into the heavy details of what went on because that's already out there. It's already been done. And since it's an over 50-year-old case, I figure why not, you know, take a stab at it, no pun intended, and, 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 and explore this guy because the more I found out about him, it was just shocking how many things fit with him. You know, he was an avid big game hunter. 
He was really into knives. He like he preferred carbon steel knives. He could make things with his hands. He could make like leather sheaths for for uh, hatchets and knives. And the Zodiac had a costume at the Lake Berryessa attack. It was the third canonical what they call Zodiac attack at Lake Berryessa in Napa, California. And he wore this you know this black hood over him like an executioner's hood that had a cross circle you know Zodiac logo on it. And you know the surviving victim Brian Hartnell of that attack said it was done with care, it was sewn on, it was done very nicely. Well, this guy knew how to sew, he could do things with leather. He said the knife that was used at that attack was a foot long and, a, and like a custom made sheath. Well, this guy had the ability to do all that. And uh, being a big game hunter, it'd be easy for him to say, hey, you know, he'd fight with his wife and just leave for a few days to go hunting. Definitely had the opportunity to do it. And there's just so many things that fit with him. And people are starting to think, God, he's just that suspect that never goes away. You know, there's always a flavor of the year that comes along, but he's the one that you just can't get rid of. So I'm pretty comfortable. You know, I'm an Occam's razor guy. The the, the solution with the fewest assumptions is probably going to be the the, the the truest outcome. And with him, it's all there. Does he have parachute experience? No, not that I know of. <laughs> he was in the Air Force. He was in the Air Force. Um I don't think he ever parachuted. He was in the Air Force for two years. Don't think he, he cut it, but uh, don't think he ever jumped out. So now that you're swimming in two different pools, the D.B. Cooper community and the Zodiac Killer one, what's the difference between the two? You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels. I mean, a lot of interesting suspects like Cooper and the Zodiac. All these guys are just freaks in their, in their own right. I mean, for, for lack of a better term, they're just so colorful. Um you know, the Zodiac world is bigger, but it's similar. Like the, you know, like a lot of the online forums, there's a lot of attacking, you know, everybody's got their, their pet suspect. And I mean, I guess I can be accused of that. No problem. Because I know all the other suspects, which is important with Cooper too. You got to know them all. If you're going to come out and say, I think it's this guy, you better darn well know the rest of them because you could, this guy could be better than yours and you don't even know it. And you're going to come off pretty bad, but uh, they're very similar in a lot of ways. You know, the online community, people trying to figure it out people getting, you know, attacking others because they don't see it the way they do. And I've kind of gotten over that. I'm not one of these people to say, hey, I think it's this guy. And if you don't agree with me, you're stupid. Um, I've gotten away from that. It's like I've learned the best thing to do is just put it out there and let people digest it. Because I think the public that are interested in these cases as a whole basically wind up getting it right. You know, once they digest it as a whole, it'll come around. I mean, and I think that is going on with both of these. Um I'm just, I, and I think one thing that is similar with both of them is I don't think they'll ever be solved to 100% satisfaction, unfortunately. I mean, uh, the Zodiac, the DNA they have is really weak. It's probably not even the Zodiac, so we're not going to get a Golden State Killer finish. Uh, with D.B. Cooper, man, I mean, uh, it, what would it take? I mean, look at, what, look at what the Citizen Sleuth did for Cooper with all these particles on the tie. You know, and you're going back, we don't even know that he did just pick up that tie somewhere. I mean, so, you know, you have all this momentum and then and then all of a sudden it can just go away. Like, man, we're, you know, finding out about all these particles on his tie, maybe it'll lead to the real guy. And then just, just, just like sand through your hands, you know, it's just gone. And you felt like you were on the tip of it. Um, it's kind of like that. You know, I just think that they'll never be totally solved to everyone's satisfaction, either of these cases. What would it take to solve the Cooper case to 100% satisfaction? 
somebody coming. Well, it's like the FBI said. You know, that's why they close it. The parachute or the money. You always hear the parachute or the money. Um, I think even somebody found the parachute, they'd probably question it. Well, we don't know that you didn't plan that over there. Uh, you just don't know. But I, I think if you would have to start with the parachute or the money. Deathbed confessions mean nothing. Um, well, they definitely don't now. I mean, I've read anywhere between dozens and over 900 people have confessed to being D.B. Cooper. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, yeah, that'd be somebody you'd want to be. Like, if somebody thought my dad was D.B. Cooper, I'd be jumping for joy. I'm uh, pretty sure it wasn't him, but it would be, you know, a cool thing to be. But, yeah, the, the deathbed confessions mean absolute zero. I mean, the hope would be that somebody high up in the FBI or the CIA, like a, like a John Singlob, who's still alive. It's, I think he's 98. And this guy's in really good shape for 98. I know he's in a YouTube video that was done three or four years ago where he's shooting a pistol at some moving targets. I mean, this guy is, he's a badass even up in his nineties, <laughs> but he knows a lot of stuff. It would have to be somebody like, if it was Braden, a guy like that, just finally coming out. Yeah, we knew it was him. And then believe in him, you know, somebody with the credibility of a, of a single lob or, a, or even a John plaster, like maybe what, you know, he would, would, would tell that guy to lead to it. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like somebody probably, you know, high up in the FBI does know who Cooper is. And they, in the lower level people just were never told. And they were, just, you know, like what happened to the cigarette butts? Somebody messaged me the other day. Like, I just can't believe they would lose those cigarette butts. You know, where did they go? I mean, right. were they lost before we knew DNA testing was available? And they said, we don't need these. Who knows? It's just, it makes you wonder. And then, you know, I don't get too deep into the conspiracies, even with Cooper. But when the plane landed in Reno, it was a mess. I mean, they were just like, people couldn't even, it was like they lost their minds. They couldn't, it was just, they, they couldn't really focus on collecting the evidence and what was going on. It just seemed like a really strange event when the plane landed. Um you know, it was like something was already already at work. And I and like we talked about before, sometimes you're, you're interviewing people or you have a good rapport with them and they just stop talking. They just stop. You're like, what's going on? This person was talking to me for a couple of days and they just stopped. I mean, it might not be the most important thing to them, but it's still odd. They just like go away permanently. Like this weird shadow government is is involved and they just don't want you to know. It, start, it makes you wonder. It does, and like every one I've talked to that starts really investigating the story and reaching out to family members and friends, they all have that exact same story. I was talking to this person, it was going well, and then all of a sudden they'd never talk to me again. That's or I messaged this reporter and then they blocked me. Yeah. I mean, you just hear that all the time. And it and happened to me too, and you, and Bruce, and others in this case, and it's just like... Why? You know, D.B. Cooper is a folk hero. No one died. Um, you know, some money got taken. You know, it's, okay, so what? You know, it wasn't like something so heinous. So why the mystery? It's just so strange. Um, it's like Joe Weber, you know, who said that, that her husband, Dwayne, had a deathbed confession to being D.B. Cooper. She, she, you know, seems like a loon to most people, but she still gets, somebody still tips her off to, information that no one else would have known it's just so bizarre that there is this weird current of manipulation or watching or something going on over the db cooper case and it's not just your imagination it's like something's really going on pretending to be somebody else yeah somebody pretending to be somebody else and these people that just stop talking 
uh, and I've had a few with, 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 even with Braden. And I've heard that it happens with other suspects. Like, what are they hiding? Why, why do they care? I mean, Ted Braden's long dead. I mean, mo- most of these suspects are long dead. I think Sheridan Peterson's only the only one still alive. What is he? He's in his 90s. Um, so what's the, you know, what's the, why would it be the end of the world if we found out the identity of D.B. Cooper? I don't know. Why do they not want that out? I mean, if it was Braden, he's certainly not talking, um, or any of them. I mean, I don't know. It, it, but there is something that's more than the imagination when these people just stop. They just stop communicating or block you, like you said. They just stop. And I mean, I'm not very intrusive. I'm very polite. I don't barrage with too much stuff. Like, well, you know, that you know, you can give them a week. Give them two weeks. You know, and you know, don't hit them too hard. And you know, just very lightly go, and then they just they're just gone. It's weird. Never understood it. Yeah, I don't get it either. I would. I can't imagine I'd be reluctant to talk about if someone made an accusation against my father. I would want to talk about it. Yeah, like, even if it was negative. You, know, you said that. I'll look into it. I don't think it's true. Um, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't dodge it. Yeah. Especially if I knew it was false, I'd want it to end. Yeah, and, and if you could easily prove it, like, no, I know where my father was on this night. I can prove it, or or, or at least emphatically state that. No, that, you know, I know for a fact that I was with him on this date and we were in another state. And at least, you know, you'd be on record for that. But it, I just, it's it's really weird. It's just, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's a strange thing. And then, uh, you know, this, the conspiracy stuff. I always go back to, to the... Uh, that show Prison Break, and we talked about that a little bit before, about D.B. Cooper, where they had the character in that TV show Prison Break, and the, the name of the D.B. Cooper character was Westmoreland, which was, of course, when you hear Westmoreland, you think of General Westmoreland, which was in charge of all the forces in Vietnam, and all these weird correlations, and then they had a D.B. Cooper episode on Prison Break, and, you know, they play with, with loose and, you know, fast and loose with, with what actually happened, but they found some money at a gas station. The, 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 they went to a gas station and filled up with gas and they gave the attendant one of the, you know, supposed DB Cooper bills. And that's how they tracked them down, which I think is kind of based on the Lindbergh deal. But anyway, the, the character in the TV show prison break, they actually gave a name to, which I thought was interesting. And it, it, because this guy, the, the part is literally just a gas station attendant who takes a bill and they gave that character a name, a first and last name, which is highly unusual for a TV show. Usually it would just be called in the script, gas station attendant or gas station attendant one, right? But they gave this one a name and it was Harold Jenkins. And uh, that's the real name of Conway Twitty, the singer, but I don't think it's related to him. But when you've searched Ted Braden under people search and stuff like that, the name Harold Jenkins keeps coming up. Like either it was an alias or because I know a lot more now about his relatives, but the name Harold Jenkins comes up like he used it as an alias or something. And if you know the show Prison Break, which was a good TV show, he would use different people's names like the, the, the limo driver in the JFK assassination. One of the characters named after him. Another one's named after something with the Lincoln assassination or something like he would pull names from different places. It's like, I don't know, man, it's like predictive programming. But Harold Jenkins comes up with Ted Braden. I could show you like on a people search. It'll say. Okay, he's related to these people, and it'll say Harold Jenkins, and that's just so funny that they named that gas station attendant on that show on the D.B. Cooper episode Harold Jenkins, who I don't even know how to speaking part, 
but they gave him that name. It's just like, do they know something they're not telling us? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't, go, I don't get into any of that in the book because people are like, oh, you're just desperate to make it your guy or whatever. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm just saying there's some weird stuff out there. Speaking of weird stuff out there, I check D.B. Cooper on the internet all the time. If I have a spare five minutes where I'm waiting in line or something, that's what I'm doing. And I see on on Reddit and on Twitter all the time that I've solved the D.B. Cooper case. The flight crew was in on it. D.B. Cooper never existed or the flight crew was in on it with him. Is there anything to support that? Zero. There's zero. That, that's, that's so far-fetched. There's just there's nothing there. I mean, it's interesting to kick around, but there's absolutely zero there. When you look at the interviews with the pilots, I can't. I think it was a, it was Radizak or um, I can't. I think it was Radizak that did the the the, the, the um, Colbert show, the uh, DB Cooper case closed. Where they got Tina Mucklow to come out of hiding for that show. That must have cost a few dollars because, as you know, Tina would never speak for years and years, which is odd. But they got her to come out for that show. But they interview her with the pilot. And uh, it might have been Scott. I don't remember which pilot, but it was one of the two. And uh, they just seem so sincere. Even Tina comes across as just completely, completely sincere. I just don't. I don't think there was anything like that happening at all. It's just. It's. There's so many people that would have been involved to to keep that quiet all these years. I don't think there's anything to it. Yeah, and the the D.B. Cooper never existed thing bothers me so much because obviously you didn't look at this at all because he was seen by a number of people. A number Many of people. people the ticket him. agent remembered him. Uh, yeah, a number of people. All those people on the flight remembered him. You know, I mean, their memories weren't much over the years, but they remember him on the plane, you know, and there was at least a good six that gave pretty detailed descriptions of him. They varied you know, between description to description, but they, they, but they do remember him sitting there like Bill Mitchell. Uh, why would Bill Mitchell lie? I mean, did he get any part of the cut? I mean, $200,000, which is like what a million one in these, you know, in today's dollars, it's still not that much to, uh, to risk all that. If you had to split it all those ways, was it worth it to go to prison the rest of your life for that? Nah, no, I mean, it's a stretch. It's a big stretch. Yeah, it's ridiculous. They all seem just too credible. Yeah, he existed, and he was just that good. <laughs> I mean, he was just that good. I mean, a guy that could have pulled that off with with such uh, calmness. It was just that there's there's not many people made that way that could have done that and been so calm about it. I mean, like McCoy is such a good to really read about how it played out for McCoy. Who who was who was a guy that was pretty fearless in his own right. McCoy was a helicopter pilot, got a silver star uh, for one action, which is probably I mean, I've read about the event that he did where he went in and shot up this in, you know enemy base where that was getting overrun, or maybe it was one of theirs where it was getting overrun by the Vietnamese, and he you know, went in you know at the risk of his own life and laid down a lot of fire. I mean, really brave guy. I mean, no doubt about it. Uh, but when you read a guy like that with that kind of bravery, did three tours in Vietnam and see how it played out for him. You could see how special D.B. Cooper was because you see how nervous McCoy was uh, putting on makeup in, in, the, in the airplane bathroom and it's all messed up. And, uh, you know, he had a hat on to kind of hide his ears. He was just a, he was a mess. 
you know, because he was nervous. I mean, he knew what he was going to do. I mean, like I said, he left the he left the tight notes that his wife did for him in the waiting area. That's a fact. That's not a fallacy of the crime. That happened. He left the typewritten hijacking notes in an envelope in the waiting area, and the person working for there had to bring him back on the plane, which he quickly claimed. I mean, it just shows you the pressure of doing something like that. I don't know if like I've that. heard that his wife typed the notes. Yeah, before. his wife did. His wife did. That's Remember? hilarious. Yeah, it's hilarious. So no, I think his wife was uh, drove him to the airport, and, and uh, when Rhodes and Comey, or however you say that guy's name that wrote the book uh, about McCoy, called The Real McCoy, about him being D.B. Cooper, um, you know, they, 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 they said a lot of things about his wife that, that you know, she didn't agree to or that might have not happened. She sued them. And that brought a lot of attention to that book. And they weren't selling any until she sued them and it made the news and they started selling books, which is funny. But, um, yeah, the wife knew all about it, um, which, you know, so if the wife had any knowledge of the Cooper ice, I guarantee you she would have given it up at some point. Why not? Probably could have got something easier, but she, you know, did have a, a, a part in it. If there was anything the FBI could have done to pin the Cooper hijacking on McCoy, they would have done it. They probably would have. You know, when they shot him, when he broke out of prison, you know, let's say the guy said, oh, when I shot uh, Richard McCoy, I just shot D.B. Cooper. You know, he wanted that, 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 that claim to fame. And I mean, the only thing that even remotely is interesting about the whole McCoy deal is that he was near Las Vegas. Uh, on the day before the Cooper skyjacking, they found a receipt where he got gas outside of Vegas or whatever. And it's kind of strange for, for that to have happened, but maybe he was gambling. I don't know. Um, I just, he wasn't D.B. Cooper. He just wasn't. I mean, he's not only because he didn't look like him, but he was nervous. I mean, why would you be so calm on the first one and to be a nervous wreck on the second? And when you read the details, it's just, it's just it's polar opposite events. White guys and 727s, that's it, jumped out. There you go. Everything else is different. I mean, just just top to bottom. Cooper was calm, calm, polite, uh, not, not rattled at all. He got a little upset when they were taking a long time to refuel the plane. He was a little concerned about the, the air marshals being on board. Other than that, he never lost his cool. And like we talked about, when they didn't bring in the money in a knapsack that he asked for, he just started cutting up rope with his pocket knife. No problem. Strapped it to his body. He was ready to go. Not McCoy. McCoy was a nervous wreck. Got away with it, but man, he got he got caught quickly. You know, told too many people about it, and uh, not the same guy. Just not. No, he's not. I mean, and Tina, what's Tina? Twenty five years old at the time. Yeah. And Bill Mitchell's nineteen or twenty. If you're yeah. telling me that. It's Rackstraw or McCoy who are, what, 28 and 29 or 27 and 28? 27 and 28. The, only a few years older than them? You cannot tell me that a 25-year-old woman sitting next to a 29-year-old man uh, for three hours would identify him as probably in his mid-40s. No, that would not happen at all. It wouldn't. It just wouldn't. I mean, that's uh, he was a few years older than me. It wouldn't. I mean, McCoy looked. I will say McCoy looked a little bit older than his age. Rackstraw did not, and Rackstraw had a photo taken of him at Disneyland of all places just one month prior to the Cooper skyjacking, uh, like a family outing to Disneyland, and he looks young. He does every bit of it. 
Uh, McCoy looks a little bit older than, than his age, but uh, he, but like I said, he looks nothing like anyone described Cooper. Nothing. I mean, he had really big ears that he was teased about when he was young. Uh, there was no makeup on. You know, you think Tina would have definitely have recognized being that close with Cooper that he was wearing makeup because it was obvious McCoy had it on on his uh, his skyjacking. Tina would have easily have seen the makeup. A hundred percent. I've brought that up before. Women wear makeup every day. Yeah, it would have been obvious. Are you going to tell me they're sitting next to a man? They would not notice he was wearing some sort of makeup? Yeah, true. And then and then also with McCoy, he had a lisp because he didn't have that little piece of the, you know, that flap under his tongue that attaches to the bottom of your mouth. It got cut or removed when he was younger, but it left him with a lisp. But uh, he also had a North Carolina. He was from North Carolina. I mean, he lived in Utah. He was a Mormon, but he was originally from North Carolina. And he had a North Carolina accent. He had a Southern accent. He would have had to have hidden that because uh, Tina said that he that Cooper didn't have any discernible accent. And if anything, she said it sounded like he was probably from the Midwest. Braden was from Ohio. Um, and from what I know, and I mean, I would ask people like Al who knew him. I said, what was his voice like? He just said nothing you know no discernible accent at all you know it sounded like a midwesterner and always measured when he spoke like he would not just speak off the cuff and he said if you ever talked about a subject he didn't like he said braid would just stop talking he would just wouldn't converse with you anymore if he didn't like it he wouldn't he wouldn't say shut up or stop talking he would just stop and and, and cut off with you until you changed the subject or something but he said every time Braden spoke it was measured uh it sounds like TV Cooper, you know, he didn't talk too much, you know, miss, I have a bomb. I need you to sit next to me. It was very deliberate. Um, that was Braden. I mean, the guy was calm. He never cussed. He smoked, he drank like Cooper, um, had all those, those attributes. McCoy, if you were a non-smoker, how are you going to smoke eight rally filter tip cigarettes and not cough? McCoy did not smoke. He couldn't have done that in Mormon circles. You would be like a, like a monster to them, you know. Most of them didn't even drink caffe- caffeine or coffee. They, you know, clean livers. And uh, you, you're not. I mean, he may maybe he smoked in Vietnam, but he certainly didn't after he was home. So, just it's he's a stretch all the way. Most of them are, you know. When you break some of these guys down, Kenny didn't really have the jumping. Peterson looks zero like the sketch. Uh, and I would agree with Bruce Smith, who did point out that that. As far as the Cooper sketches go, compared to the photos, that once I found a Braden, I'd say the only one that's even in the same league as Braden is probably Ted Mayfield, who has his own problems. But there's one picture of Mayfield where he looks, you know, dark-skinned, swarthy, kind of looks like the, the Cooper sketch. I'll give Ted Mayfield some credit on that. But outside of them, I don't see anyone close to the sketches. Um, you know, Florence Schaffner came up with her own sketch with the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. And that was with this real more defined widow's peak. And I even found a picture of Braden that looks really close to the one that Florence Schaffner came up with, with that TV show all on her own. Cause she used to say the original sketch wasn't close. She said, it's more like this and, you know, had more of a defined widow's peak, kind of a longer face, but there's even one where Braden looks like that. So I don't know. A lot of those guys aren't even close. Yeah. Some of some suspects are definitely better than others. All right, now let's talk about um, one thing that you and I probably know nothing about, and that is how did the money get on Tina Barr? You know, I know you know that probably better than I do, but I have looked in it. And I did look, you know, I 
reviewed all the Citizen Sleuth's work on that, which was great. Um, I definitely think it was uh, it was by human means. I know it could not have gotten there naturally. I just there's no way it could have gotten there naturally. They they know it wasn't from the dredge. Um, it looks like somebody planted that planted it there fairly soon. You know, not too far after the the, the uh, skyjacking. Um, and it just remained there, like it was buried there soon after, and somehow the rubber bands stayed intact, which is insane because you just see rubber bands in your garage that will just break at the touch. But, you know, I know when Brian Ingram says he pulled them out of the ground that, that they did immediately break, but they were still intact when he, when, when the bundles were discovered. But uh, to me, I think they, it was planted. I don't know why or how, but it looked they looked planted. I mean, I just, I, I don't see how by natural means that money could have wound up there. No matter where the drop zone was, how can the money, you know, come to rest like that? It's just insane. It just looks like it was buried at some point after the skyjacking and not too much closer to when it was actually found. But I don't know. I, I don't know either. It's It's so interesting with this case that the only two pieces of evidence after he jumps out of the plane are the tie and the money on Tina Barr. And both of those, everyone's just scratching their head. Like, how do I fit this in? Yeah. How, how, did, how did he get there? How did he get buried like that? I mean, I know there's these theories. Maybe he got a ride out of the woods and gave some guy some of the money for getting him out of the woods. And the guy got scared and went and buried it on the Tina Barr. Um, you know, it's probably something like that. I, I mean, more there's how would it ever have landed there naturally i mean i don't think the river could have ever taken it there and the dredge was further up right it couldn't have been the dredge planning it up on the beach it's just so many weird things pretty unlikely to me very unlikely with the dredge just so strange and then you get into the whole argument with the shards were the shards there like the fbi said were they there like brian said and then, uh, you know, when you read Jeffrey Gray's book, Skyjack, which is an excellent book. I love that book. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And it's, it's you know, it's, you know Jeffrey Gray's book and Bruce's book are the two best on D.B. Cooper. Hopefully this one will be third. But, uh, you know, even Brian starts questioning himself later on. Did, you know, was he the one that actually found the money or was, was it his cousin? You know, that, that I forgot her name, but he, was, he even asked her at one point, do I remember this right? Was I the one that pulled the money under the ground or was it you? And she's like said something along the lines of, you know, and she's never really answering him. You know, like he's starting to, you know, not even know if he, if he recollected it, but, you know, are these, these little shards next to the the money bundles or not? It's just all this inconsistency. Like, I know Bruce did a YouTube video on the Tina Bar Money Fine, which is awesome, but he talks about all these strange stuff when you enter the Cooper world that down is up and up is down. Uh, people's stories change. People can't remember exactly. Um you know, you truly are in the vortex then where nothing makes any sense. Like once you think you're going to get an answer, it just flies away from you. You know, it's that. Yeah. It's every bit is, is, is perplexing is who DB Cooper was is how that money got there. No one knows. And we'll never know at this point. I don't think we'll ever know how that money <laughs> landed. I in think that. we're more likely to find out who D.B. Cooper was than how the money got to Tina I, I agree. And it would be great if he was still alive so he could tell us how it got there. I mean, they found the placard out of the plane. I think the flight path is originally reported is probably correct. 
you know, the plane was being tailed. Placard, I've read the placard wasn't from the same plane. Really? I never saw that. I never heard that. Yeah, it, it's been debated endlessly on the uh, D.B. Cooper forum. I wonder how that would have ever, <laughs> if it was not that one, it's even stranger. It's even more strange than it wasn't from the Cooper plane. That a placard from a staircase was just wind up in the woods. Found by hunters. Yeah. And I've actually seen one placard in person that was told to me to be the one from the plane. And it didn't match the ones I've seen online. So the placard, the money shards, and the parachutes are ones where I don't even like to talk about them because I'm unsure myself Mm -hmm. what is correct so weird and then and then you know the 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 land around there where the Tinabar is it's owned by the the, uh, the fazio brothers mm-hmm. there was cattle mutilations on you know like these strange alien cattle mutilations where all the guts of the cattle are removed it looked like they were done by like surgical removal or something like the space alien connotation did you ever read that where the the cattle mutilations that were on the fazio brothers uh land I read all about it on the Mountain News, I believe. Yeah, that's crazy. What, what are the odds of that? It's just like, what kind of strange... Maybe we have alien involvement here. That, that'll explain how the money got on the Tina Bar. Maybe aliens grabbed Cooper. They could, maybe they did. They wanted him. They wanted him. They, they had some covert operation somewhere on another planet that he had to do. Threw him out of the spaceship with the money that landed on the Tina Bar. It's just strange. I mean, there's just too many weird things in this case. It's not cut and dry, and it should be, and it's not. There's nothing even close. It's like every time you find out something new, there's two two other. It brings up two other questions you can't answer. Do you think all of the suspects and all the different theories and all these different books that it's muddied the water so much that? The public really doesn't know what is true and what isn't. Yeah, I think so. That, 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 that you know, it's happened over time. Like you know, the negotiable currency thing that people run with had to be Canadian because he said negotiable American currency. So that shows he wasn't American. And then you find out that, it, that was, Cooper never said that. And just a little clue like that could just throw you off and put you on on the on a completely different trail. So yeah, a lot of the a lot of the folklore it, it's carried over the years, and you. It's hard to go stripped down to what originally happened. And the best way to do that is, is to go read the original FBI files is a good way to start uh, from ground zero. And I did that. But definitely you don't want to go read about every suspect they looked at because it's never ending. I mean, they looked at all kinds of, I mean, just ridiculous amount of people. They looked at people that that, that bought rally filter tip cigarettes and tried to, who, who asked for the coupons for those cigarettes and there was a guy in Ohio. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There was a huge effort to find D.B. Cooper, that's for sure. I don't know if you could say there was a level of uh, corruption or at the FBI trying to hide who he was. Maybe there was at the higher levels, but at the lower levels, I think they were going all out to find him and they couldn't. But, you know, going back to Mark Metzler's show he did with you, he, he even said, even in the sport, parachute world it was a small world and he made the comment like we were sure we were going to find out that he was one of us and that kind of goes for the vietnam guys too it was a it was a relatively small world of somebody that could have carried that out like ted braden and why they always pointed to him uh you know there was not that many people that could have thought of it and done it so 
it wasn't that big of a world back then that, you know, for, for either sport parachutists or military parachutists at that level, they could have, they could have, they could have, they could have pulled that off, especially out of that plane in that kind of weather. It's got a really limited pool of guys there. So, Oh yeah. Drew, if you, if you had a billion dollars and unlimited resources, what would you do to solve this case? What needs to happen next? Yeah, I, I probably are you. If I had the money, I would use it for people that aren't talking to me now, <laughs> or or that have stopped, <laughs> including uh, a couple of my brain stepdaughters that were older than the. You know, I talked to the youngest. Uh, there's a couple that are. You know, we're actually there's three that are older, but the two in the middle would have known them better and were a little older at the time. I would say, what does it take? You know, because I know you're going to know some things that we don't. You might not, you know, at all. But people like that, that you could go find. Uh, but man, you know, we're talking about a 50 year old case now. A lot of these people are are, are 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 gone. So you would just have to find anybody that was still alive. I would I would try to find any trucker that ever knew Tread Braden that might have remember him from from driving at consolidated did he ever go you know that's one thing i would want to find out if who, there would be, have to be somebody alive or a record there i mean because the company's not around anymore they're really big at the time but uh wouldn't have ever had a need to go to their home base in vancouver washington which is of course ground zero for Gibby cooper um did he ever have cause to go there would he have been in the you know try to put him in the area and then find anybody that could have known him back then put put an ad out somewhere i mean there was a a facebook site for consolidated trucker they used to call it cornflakes because it was consolidated freightways and you call it cf cornflakes for short but uh, i even put messages on there does anyone remember this guy and uh nothing but i would use the money to just really dig in uh, i would try to find out if if that metal could have been from from ohio i mean we know that that titanium came from ohio which is interesting that Ted was in that area. Um, who, you know, somebody that may have known, you know, did Brain drive a truck then? Uh, you know, also they found the Citizen Sleuths found on the tie stuff that would have been used in cathode ray tubes for, for you know, televisions. And, uh, and uh, I think phosphorus. I can't remember all the exact stuff, but uh, there was a plant that uh, Pittsburgh plate guys had that had all that stuff in it. And at the time that Al ran into Braden, he was driving a truck for PPG, Pittsburgh Plate Glass, and they had a factory that had a lot of those elements in it. But then I later found out that he was working for Consolidated before. So that kind of turned out to be somewhat of a dead end. But, you know, there's always some other avenue you can think of to try to find out, you know, if you're on the right track. Just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And then if you meet something that, that, that pulls away from it, you have to be honest about it. Like, yeah, this, you know, that points against him. So... And if it's something that exculpatory, you just to come out and say, it can't be him. We found out that Ted was playing bridge at this place on that night. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. So it, it would be just finding whoever's still alive that remembers the guy, you know, truck drivers. But, you know, he was weird. He, was, he didn't talk much. Uh, going back to Jim Hetrick in Vietnam, who served as assistant team leader, he said he would be at a bar. They'd be drinking at a bar in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, Ted would just sit at the end of the bar. He wouldn't, talk, he wouldn't really talk to anybody, just kind of like sulking, he said. I think Jim used the word sulking. He was always just kind of thinking to himself, you know, like like he was either upset or just sulking, as Jim would say. it. Like you couldn't get close to him. You, you know, he wouldn't talk about personal things at all with you. 
he would just sit at the end of the bar and sulk. You know, he was just different. He was, you know, you couldn't you couldn't know him on on a, on a, that close of a level. He just wouldn't let anyone get to him. So there's definitely some psychological stuff going on with the guy that, that you know I try to I try to drag out a little bit in the book because just fascinating guy. But not the guy that would go around bragging that he committed this heist. No, no. Like I said, no one knew he had two biological children. Um, I think he might have been trying to lead Al on to like, you know, and was literally upset. You didn't, you know, he was a sky, you know, avid skydiver, didn't really take interest in what D.B. Cooper did. And he was, you know, kind of like kind of upset. Like, you know, he just kind of like truly looked upset to Al. Like, you know, why wouldn't you follow D.B. Cooper? I mean, you're, you're a skydiver. What's wrong with you? Um, but yeah, because if there was, you know, one person he could trust telling that he could have told Al. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I don't think he would have risked that. I don't think he would have. I really don't. I mean, if he told his last wife, maybe, you know, because she told the daughter, yeah, I think he's D.B. Cooper, although she was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. But um, he could definitely keep a secret. That That's no doubt. But, uh, I, yeah, I think I would have been a guy. He could have said, hey, it was me. But maybe he didn't thought Al would go talking because, you know, just think about that. If he believed him, you would have to trust Al not to tell anybody else. Um Especially if he got in trouble and they said, don't tell anybody, dear. This is the last straw with you. I mean, I don't know. It's just Ted was definitely a guy that had a get more than one get-out-of-jail-free cards, and he used them. So if he got caught, they would have just taken whatever money left. You know, that's one theory. If it was Ted, they caught up with him. We know it's you. We know your guy's in Vietnam. And they, you know, did some searching around, found some of the money. They took most of the money, and then they put it on Tina Barr just to make people believe Cooper was dead. That's, you know, FBI could have done it early. And then, but then you have to say, are we going to leave it there or just wait for Brian Ingram to come take it up in 1980? Um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really strange. I mean, I do believe that the Ingrams were not tipped off though. I really, at least I've come to that conclusion as far as the money find. I don't think the Ingrams were tipped off. I really don't. None of them. I think they found it legitimately and were surprised as anybody, but how it got there, we'll never know. Yeah, I doubt we'll find that one out. How come you are not battling it out with everyone else on the forums, on the DB Cooper forum and on the drop zone? I just never did. I mean, uh, you know, there was a lot of fighting going on, uh, people pushing a suspect or this and that. I just didn't want to do it. Uh, it just wasn't my thing. You know, I like to read them. It was interesting. But I knew those guys knew the case really well at the time. They'd been following it for years and years. Uh, very smart. I just didn't really feel like it, you know. And, and, and uh, you know, once in a while someone would bring up Raiden and somebody would chime in. Yeah, he's fascinating. What a great jumper. But I don't think he's D.B. Cooper. And they never really offer any reason for why not. I mean, even some, you know, some of these guys that might not have a, a favorite suspect or firmly believe he's probably dead. But they'll always say, man, he's a fascinating guy. But I don't think he's D.B. Cooper. Well, why? How do you know? Can you put someone else on the plane? Can you put Ted Braden somewhere else than that plane? They can't. I just say they just all seem to have their minds made up already. And, you know, it's fun to talk about some of the other aspects, of course, because I love them all. I mean, I could talk about all the other suspects. And I could probably go on forever and not even mention Ted. But uh, this was never really into a lot of the board stuff because it just there was so much bad blood going on 
the Zodiac case is the same way. Lots of message boards. Reddit's one of the bigger ones, but a lot of the guys on there haven't even read the case files. They don't know it that well. Uh, I had a guy trying to tell me that the witness descriptions on the Zodiac deal the other day, it was on another guy's thread that did a, did a podcast with me, and he was saying, well, none of them, if you read them, even sound like your guy or something like that. I'm like, are you kidding me? You obviously haven't read them. And he didn't. I mean, and I, I found him out and they're like, four minutes just expose this guy that he really didn't even know the case. So it's just like, and then once you get sucked into some of those arguments, you're like compelled to go back and finish it. You know, it's like this, yes. one, it's like the one upmanship that never ends, you know, like, Oh, there's my, there's the red dot on YouTube. The guy wrote me back and it's like, you have to get the one up and it always devolves in these huge fights or something. <laughs> it's like, I just never had a, a stomach for it. Well, if somebody, has information on Ted Braden or wants to tell you why you're completely wrong. Is there somewhere that can do that? Yeah. Email me. Uh, my email address is on my book website, which is drew And then you have a YouTube channel as well. Right. That's under my name. And I've got three DB Cooper videos on there. Lots of Zodiac stuff, three DB Cooper. Um, uploads one is all about Braden one then another one's all about the suspects I think I start that at the end of the Braden video and then I go over all of them and they're great videos and I like I mentioned at the top of the podcast I love that there's pictures because with a lot of these suspects there's just like two random pictures of them and no pictures of anything else and in your book and in your videos it's like oh yeah and then there was this guy and then a picture of him yeah. Even um, even the the Horner William Horner, uh, you had a picture of him in your. Yeah, book. A picture of Horner, which is which is cool. I found that picture of Bill Mitchell, uh, which most people have never seen. I, I think I uh, found a picture of Earl Cossey that's not real common. Um, and obviously with Braden, I tried to get every picture I could ever find, which is which was very lucky. Got a World War II picture of him, several from Vietnam, um, several I got uh, from uh, Altair who jumped with him in, in newspaper articles that Braden appeared in for winning jumping competitions. I got that one of uh, Braden that has that uh, pilot's parachute on his back with the other guy in the plane. Uh, you know, he sent me all those originals. So I got high resolution scans of them all. Al sent me all those photos of the early sixties of Ted. And then of course, Mike Dearbaugh, the nephew provided a lot of pictures that were so cool, including the one with his mom, which I love. Um, cause it looks so much like the Cooper sketch, but yeah, I love, I love finding those hard to get photos that, that haven't been out there. Um, and they're out there. You just got to find the right people that have them like that one with his mom, you know, that was, uh, uh, his nephew's living in Scotland now. So that was just in a, you know, his shoebox somewhere in Scotland, never seen the light of day, never scanned. And then what we did is, um, his nephew made a find a grave entry for Ted Braden, which was cool. And uh, he uploaded some of them there, and I uploaded a couple and left a comment, which was neat. So now it's kind of, you know, the virtual gravesite for Ted Braden. He was actually cremated, uh, and we don't know where he's buried or where his ashes went, but at least he's got to find a grave now. So you're not forgotten, Ted. Definitely not. So your your Zodiac book, Sighting It on the Zodiac Killer, that's out and available on Amazon. Is your... Uh, Paratrooper of Fortune, is that out yet? I looked on Amazon this morning and I didn't see it. It will be by the time people listen to this podcast. Fantastic. If you're listening to this podcast, 
the minimum the Kindle version will be on Amazon. Hopefully the paperback too. It's a little harder of an animal to man to put those things on Amazon. It's insane. But uh, the Kindle version will absolutely be ready. And I'm going to do an audible um, audio book for, for this book as well. I think that's a great soon. idea. I mean, if yeah, people are listening me to that, then- a two and a half hour podcast about DB Cooper, uh, they're definitely willing to listen to an audiobook. I think the podcast audience and the audiobook audience are one and the same. Absolutely. And that's the way things are going. And I haven't done one, you know, and I have uh, one lined up to do for the Zodiac as well, but I'm going to do this one first, the Cooper one, uh, the Paratrooper of Fortune would be a great read. I mean, just reading some of the quotes that people have said about Ted Braden would just blow your mind. I mean, this is incredible stuff uh, of how they explain them. I know Jim Hattrick was always, he would always make a uh, the statement that you can hear anything about Ted B. Braden and it just might be true. Like, <laughs> yeah. So outlandish that it was, it was probably true. I mean, like he was just known to be this, this, you know, maniac in a lot of ways, cool, calm and collected. But as far as going into action, doing something, killing a guy in Vietnam, no problem. Uh, he was just that kind of guy just had, you know, he was reserved, always looked cool and calm, but when it came to flying into action and doing something crazy, he would just do it in a heartbeat. You know, like he said about him, he had balls of steel. And that's coming from hardened special forces guy saying this guy had the biggest balls of all of us. He's he's in another league. So that's the guy I want to know about, you know, and I'd really bring it out in the book, how different this guy was. Definitely. Paratrooper of Fortune, the story of Ted B. Braden. Great book. I appreciate you sending me an advanced copy so I could read it before this. And I will recommend everybody pick it up. It's a great book. Thank you, Darren. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the show and keeping us up to date on Ted Braden. Thank you, Darren. Enjoyed it. Paratrooper of Fortune, the story of Ted B. Braden is out now. Go pick it up. Drew put a ton of work into this and it really shows when you read the book you will enjoy it and Ted's life story is amazing whether or not you believe he hijacked a 727. Drew has his YouTube channel as well with the great three-part series on the Norjack case and Ted Braden so go check that out too. I have links to it all in the show notes for you. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet or someone you think we should have on the show? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are the Cooper Vortex instagram at the cooper vortex on twitter at db cooper podcast or email us db cooper podcast at gmail.com if you enjoyed the show please leave us a review thank you to drew beeson for writing paratrooper of fortune the story of ted b braden when we spoke last year i told him he should write a book about this and he did So thank you, Drew. I'm glad that Ted's story is out there and that you were the one to tell it. Thank you to Russell Colbert for always being a kind person, even to me. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.